four, three, two, one. Welcome to Atwood Unleashed number three. Huge thank you to all the people who've been supporting the Unleashed series so far. You've shown a huge interest in it and you've suggested numerous guests, which we have distilled down to five tonight. And if you thought that the Dream Team was strong on Unleashed One, Ash has really done us proud. Let me pull up the lineup. And before we bring in our first guest. So the lineup tonight includes Richard Grannon is going to be the first guest discussing narcissism. He is a life coach for victims of narcissistic abuse. And we're going to be looking at narcissism in the context of the super predators that we are commonly examining on this channel, including Maxwell, Prince Andrew, Nygaard. Now, would you believe it? Second guest, Nygaard's estranged son. Yes, Kai Zen Bickle is coming on jointly with Chris Hansen. Chris Hansen off to catch a predator whose videos have been massively viral on YouTube. I mean, he must have, this guy must have almost a billion views because some of these clips have got like tens of millions of, of, of views each. You only see that with like rappers. So Chris Hansen is joining Peter Nygaard's son. 710 to 745, another viewer favorite. We are talking the behavior panel. Maybe you remember the work we did with the behavior panel. Sonia was on. We were discussing McCann's body language. We were discussing Prince Andrew's body language. Both of those videos are in the description box if you want to check the, our previous work with the behavior panel. But tonight, the behavior panel is concentrating on Michael Jackson and possibly, if we've got enough time, Richard Ramirez the night stalker the serial killer because we are segueing over to a serial killer series with ron swanson on friday so we got that new live coming and ron is going to come on briefly this evening just a 10 to 15 minute slot discussing the new series showing the trailer for it 8 to eight forty. david whitehead the truth warrior Again, a viewer favorite. He has done two previous videos of us. He did one about Maxwell, and he did one that was called From UFOs to Satanism, where he went all over the cults. Now, our final guest for the evening. We tried to get him on before. Fingers crossed. Our final guest is Mr. Orange. U.S.-Mexico border control consultant. He's going to be discussing the war on drugs, corrupt border agents from his first-hand experience, which ties in to our motto on this channel, end the war on drugs. Take all of those resources and put that money into the war against predators. Now, I know some of our guests are controversial and you may not like them all, Please don't shoot the interviewer. I am a neutral entity just sat here 
trying to extract the best information out of the guests that I believe the viewers are most interested in. For example, John Sweeney, hugely controversial. He got slammed, but he filled in a lot of information I've been pondering about the Maxwell family history. So it's important, if you don't like someone, you can often learn a lot from people that you don't like. If you just don't, you know, outwardly um, dismiss them. That brings me on to the Michael Jackson situation. I know, you know, it's such a polarizing subject. His songs are still played today. So many people around the world love Michael Jackson. And so many people around the world think that he is a super predator who was able to get away with all kinds because of his fame and because people were just so in awe of him and they would hand over their kids to him. Again, I'm completely neutral on this. I'm no expert on Jackson. I just want to hear what the behavior panel say so we can all form our own conclusions. And if you don't agree with our experts, if you don't agree with our guests, if you don't agree with anything I say, I urge all of you to do your own research and draw your own conclusions because we don't get everything right all of the time. We are all prone to mistakes. That is the human condition. All right, so let's get straight over to Richard Grannon because he is in the waiting room. There is some news on Maxwell. There is some news on Sigmund Freud's grandson protecting elite political predators. If I get a chance, I will break into that as well at some point. But while everything's running smoothly with the guests, let's bring them in on the times we've told them. So here we go. Admit. All right, so like I said in the lineup video, and like I said in the introduction here today, our first guest is Richard Grennan. He is a successful YouTuber, life coach for victims of narcissistic abuse. And we're going to be drawing on his expertise. Are you okay to turn your camera on, Richard? We're going to be drawing on his expertise to analyze the narcissistic traits possessed by super predators such as Epstein, Nygaard, and Maxwell. Richard. Hi, Thank Sean. You. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. How's it going, mate? Very well, sir. Very well. Thanks for having me on. And where are you based? Um, in Prague. Oh, you're in Prague. Are you a British yeah. man? Yeah, it's, uh, it's nice. Out. Well, actually, right now it's minus nine degrees C, so it's a, it's a bit of a snow drift at the moment. And where's yeah. your accent from? Um, I'm from the world, by you. Oh, you. I thought, right. Is, is someone from my neck of the woods that I sort of thought. Yeah. Are you, you're Warrington way, right? Just before Warrington, it begins with a W. So you know, you got me. It's below Wigan. There's like, there's a I was going to say, you actually there's sound a, there's a triangulation. Like there's a triangulation of W towns up there. I would, I would have said Wigan if you'd asked me. <laughs> Warrington, <laughs> Warrington, Wigan and Witness. Oh, lovely Witness. Oh, it's a nice part of the world. <laughs> but I'm, I'm broadcasting from um, Guildford in Surrey right now. Oh, lovely, lovely. Yeah, all right, so... Would you please share your credentials with us, Richard, as to how you became an expert in the study of narcissistic traits? Um, well, <laughs> I've got a degree in psychology. And when I left uh, university, 
Um, I managed to get myself into the probation service where I was uh, in Runcorn, actually. Oh, my goodness, delivering... my neighbouring town. Your neighbouring town, yeah. <laughs> a, lovely, a lovely spot. And uh, <laughs> they decided the best use of me was offering cognitive behavioural techniques to criminals who were criminals due to being uh, drug addicts. So I did that for a period of time. Um, and then through the different set of circumstances, uh, ended up working as a, uh, a nightclub doorman for years, then as a self-defense instructor. And then I went into the British education system for about five years and started using the psychology degree again. And um, I had no interest in teaching narcissism, if I'm being honest. I was actually trying to teach self-assertiveness techniques to instructors from the martial arts world because we were finding you could have a guy, he might be as hard as 10 bastards, as they say, but couldn't stand (laughs) up to his wife, couldn't stand up to his kids. So that was why the site and the concept was called Spartan Life Coach. It was a spin-off from uh, self-defense teaching. But once I started running uh, that YouTube channel, people were asking me about the psychology of narcissism and the psychology of uh, psychopathy. My background in psychology actually didn't really hold much stock in personality disorders, so I was a bit dismissive of it. But the more I looked into it, the more I could see that um, broad-scale narcissism is a huge factor in people's interpersonal relationships and in society at large. So, yeah, that's uh, I've been doing that for eight years this year. Brilliant. So you must be able to handle yourself, then, if you're working the doors on those uh, northern town um pubs and clubs liverpool liverpool was the place i worked the most but i did a stint in tenerife and in auckland new zealand as well right wow yeah <laughs> well it sounds like you've got a book in you but we're gonna have to um keep those stories for another occasion yeah, yeah. so the, the, the characters that we've been analyzing on this channel then super predators you know including epstein nygaard Maxwell, what is your take? Let's just start with Epstein then. Um, I think you've you've got, uh, I think some of the things that we're seeing now, they're almost outside the bounds of um, psychiatry. So my definitions of narcissism, I use the American definitions from the American Psychiatric Association. And you look at people like Epstein and he's not, is almost not really covered by the diagnostic and statistical manual. He, I think what we're seeing now is, um, to use that overused journalistic phrase, it's like narcissism on steroids. It's narcissism superpowered. And it's narcissism with a particularly uh, focused, goal-orientated brand of psychopathy mixed in as well, with a lot of Machiavellianism. Sometimes this is referred to as the, as the dark triad. Um, to my grandmother, he would have been a particularly nasty piece of work is how she would have diagnosed him. Um, but you get people who basically seem to have uh, had the humanity part of them, either it was never activated, the mammalian, compassionate, empathic, warm side of the brain, or they seem to have, have, have not been born with it or trauma has knocked it out of them. So they operate from a very reptilian uh, perspective and they are infinitely cruel they have no moral boundaries and they are completely fixated on their uh, particular goals and you know footnote as much as like what we know 
of Epstein, his his ultimate ending was, um, you know, a, a failure. He was largely successful in his endeavours for decades. Have you watched the interview with him where they're asking him about the abnormal shape of his penis and his body language during that? I... I tried. I actually, as much as I work in this, I'm a, I'm a bit sensitive. And uh, I, I actually couldn't stick with it because it was so disturbing uh, watching that guy uh, just lie and lie and lie. And, and I, I could see he was never, he just was never going to offer any kind of closure or any kind of, um, uh, he was never going to show contrition for anything that, that, that he'd done. So I think, I think I got through about, six or seven minutes of it. And then I was like, I can't, I just can't watch this. It's awful. He seems drained of life, almost yeah. as if he's not got like the warmth of humanity in him. And then when he does express himself, it's, it's like this superiority, this arrogance. How dare, you know, I, you, you guys be putting me here today, questioning me. It's like radiating from him. And then when he doesn't want to answer something, you know, he just stops the interview so are those traits, do they lie within the different uh, definitions that you just cited that apply to him? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's narcissism there, which is that he is living or was living um, inside of a fictional version of reality. And it's not that real reality wasn't getting in, it's that it would permeate the narcissistic shell and be ordered in such a way as he was the top predator. He's the king of his own kingdom. And he's talking to people like they're naughty, rebellious subjects. And um, they, they never really seem to be able to work around that. They never seem to be able to crack that. So that's pure narcissism. The um, goal orientatedness of his behavior and the uh, sadism and malice um, is the psychopathic side of him at work. And as you said, there doesn't seem to be anybody there. There really isn't. The way that these personality disorders function is there, is, there isn't really a human being present. There's the semblance of one, there's the avatar of one, but that avatar functions like a kind of artificial intelligence. It's like a cloud of nanobots that becomes whatever it needs to be in order to evoke the reactions it, or submission or actions it wants to get from the people around him which is why obviously his life became about, uh, or much of his life became about acquiring compromising material on people because all he understood and all he would map in reality was leverage. And uh, blackmail, I guess, is, is, the, uh, is the ultimate form of that. So to just procure and abuse teenage girls then, that are not of the legal age. I mean, we're talking he bragged at the low end that he had slept with 12-year-old triplets procured by Jean-Luc Brunel, and he was giggling about what great oral sex they gave him. Uh, you know, and then I've interviewed Vic, uh, survivors like Maria Farmer and heard, you know, how this has traumatized these women as they've grown into adulthood and how it's just impacted their lives so devastatingly so to be able to do that on a massive industrial scale mm. like epstein did i mean what how would you classify that behavior to just the pure organizational skill 
to build that thing to yeah. create horror in so many people's lives it's uh i mean you know it's work it was his work it was his life's work his magnum opus it reminds me of that that horrifying film i don't know if you've seen it that the house that jack built um and this is this is psychopathy in action they build horror houses um that's that becomes their life's work they are they seem to be hell bent on inflicting evil and passing evil on to others i mean that kind of uh, childhood sexual abuse i know from my personal experience it's a, it's a it's a has a devastating effect on your personality your sense of self and, you know, in very simple terms, it makes it hard to live. It makes it hard to do normal things and to progress as a normal human being because it takes important parts of you out it, uh, it, or it crushes them. And in a certain sense, sexual abuse leaves the victim possessed. So Epstein, in a, in a certain sense, he himself was a haunted house um, with, with nobody home. And then he spent his life sort of possessing other people uh, through these these acts. And I'm sure he took pleasure in that. I'm sure the pleasure wasn't just sexual gratification. It was the exercise of control. And it would have been knowing that he was destroying people's lives would have been uh, gratifying for him as a that the sadistic, psychopathic side of his personality would have taken gratification from that. In terms of nurture versus nature, which one is more likely to have shaped Epstein's behavior and his traits? Well, I was, uh, went to university in the late nineties and I was uh, given a lot of fairly left-leaning brainwashing. So I was always on the nurture um, side of the argument, which is a more of a, generally speaking, is a more of a leftist view, which is we're born as blank slates and then life happens and we respond to life. I would think now, as I'm older and I've seen more of the world, it's probably both. There's probably, there, the answer will lie, we, we haven't got the answer yet, but we will, and it will lie in epigenetics. So things will have happened to him in his childhood, uh, I'm sure, that would have activated parts of him that otherwise may have lain dormant and turned him into the monster that he became. And let's not forget, you know, He's raised in America, which is the epicenter of narcissistic psychopathy in the world. So let's talk about some of the monsters he associated with. Um, so we recently had John Sweeney on the podcast talking about the family history of Ghislaine Maxwell. And in particular, he honed in on the corporal punishment that Robert Maxwell meted out to his kids. Now, Ghislaine was his favorite. But when he was disciplining her, she had a choice of belt that she was going to get whipped with. And Sweeney actually cited that as a mitigating factor in her behavior. He said mm. that later on when the cops came, there were books in the properties such as, I think it was, um, was it the story of O or some BDSM kind of manual? Mm. And Sweeney's thoughts was that that BDSM street was laid down perhaps by this corporal punishment from her dad. So what is your analysis of Maxwell? And do you think that that's what Sweeney's theorized could be correct? 
I think I think I, I actually I've never heard that before. Um, it reminds me of the stories, though, that I heard of of the kind of abuse that Michael Jackson suffered at the hand of his father, which which sounded similar. And it just it just makes me think, you know, nowadays Freud is really out of fashion. It's not cool to cite Freud. It's not cool to like psychoanalysis. But I think we might have to walk in the psychology community. We might have to walk back on that a little bit because he's been proven so right so often. Um, and this is all very Freudian that your sexual sort of attachment style develops in childhood and your first primary object, as they say in psychoanalysis, would be mother or father. And it absolutely shapes the progression of your sexual tastes as, as you age. Um, when you're young, your brain is at the height of its neuroplasticity. It's very soft and you're extremely uh, impressionable, more impressionable than you'll ever be at any other age in life with no boundaries. And you would experience at a young age, um, you wouldn't have the boundary to be able to say, my mother is doing this to me, my father is doing this to me. The child's subjective experience is more like this is happening and everything is me and I am that. Which is why children uh, who experience sexual abuse often grow up with terrible guilt because they know they, well, they, they know on an intuitive level that it's wrong, but then as they age, they learn how wrong it was, but they never quite shake, or we never quite shake the feeling that we caused it because you don't have that boundary to say, mother is there and I am here. You're just one unit. So if father is hitting me with a belt and he is sexually aroused, then I, of course, as a child, if adult sexual energy is there, I'm going to be aware of that and on some level will be sexually activated, let's say, though I, I wouldn't have a sex drive as such like an adult. I would, I would mirror the sexual activation of my mother or father or, or abuser, caregiver. And then, of course, we're attachment machines. We associate, we attach to everything. That's how we create meaning in the world. So if I'm a small girl and my father, who is my role model for all men in the world for the rest of my life, is sexually aroused and, and hitting me with a belt, I'm going to associate male sexual arousal, my, my sexual arousal with dominance, my submission and being hit in some way. Okay, great. Um, just a quick shout out to the, all of the people right now on the live stream. We've got almost 2,000 and also a huge thank you to the people in the super chats and we will be answering the questions at the very end of the stream. They're being gathered right now. So... When two people meet then that have the same psychopathic and narcissistic traits, mm. does that combine then that they have this respect and bond to unite their energy to create such a horrendous system as what Epstein created? Is that, you know, when, when Epstein and Maxwell got together, did those traits, did they recognize those traits in each other perhaps? If, if indeed you do believe that Maxwell has the same traits as Epstein. I, I would need to know more about how, how they interacted. Um, he could be, he could be the, um, the prime mover, the activator, and she could have become activated by him. So I, I don't know whether she would have, whether she would have gone on to have done any of the things that she did without an Epstein or an Epstein-like character. 
it's possible that she wouldn't have done. Um, but I, as I said, I don't, I don't know enough. If, if he was activating her, then they would have a classic um, narcissist, echo, narcissist, codependent style of relationship where they fit hand in glove. And absolutely, they would have recognized each other. We, we give, I mean, you know yourself, um, with a practical understanding of psychology that you have, we give away a lot of information about each other. We think we're so slick. Everybody thinks that they're hiding, but actually you give away a tremendous amount of information. And if you're intellectually curious and open, you can do, I think it's what the psychics call or the fake psychics call cold reading. So you can scan a person, look at them and you can detect these little traits. You're looking at the micro expressions, the unconscious processes it. And yeah, they would have recognized each other and probably at an unconscious level, they would have felt very excited to be with each other. There would have just been a, an adrenal rush to being with each other where everything else would have made them feel emotionally numb. And there would be like, their subjective experience would be, wow, we have such chemistry. This is my soulmate. And actually what it is, is wow, you're both really screwed up and really need therapy, but you don't want to go to therapy. What you want to do is go into this repetition compulsion together and continue to live out the abuse, but with you as the person in power uh, throughout adulthood. How common is that then for two psychopathic narcissists to combine? In my is it, personal, is it rare? I, I don't think so. In my personal opinion, and, and this is only based on, you know, anecdotal evidence in the last eight years. There's no clinical research that backs what I'm about to say. I think the more common combination is psychopath and narcissist together. If you go online and you go into the YouTube narcissism world, it, it, you will be presented with the idea that there's a predator and prey, and it's usually narcissist versus, uh, with an echo or a codependent, a predator with a target. But I don't think that's the majority. I think it's very frequent. I don't think those relationships last. I think they're doomed to fail. The ones that last is when you have two people firmly in the predatory cluster be together and they can do their thing together. That's what lasts. And it's actually A, more common and B, more stable, if we can say that that kind of relationship is stable, than when uh, somebody in the cluster B gets with somebody who is you know, neurotypical for want of a better term. So no, I, I, I don't think it's rare. I think it's the more common paradigm. We just don't hear about it. We just don't know about it because they're not online asking for help and talking about it. They're just quietly getting on with whatever it is that they want to do. Okay. I've got a final um, question then before we get our next guest in. One of the themes tonight is Michael Jackson. I'm just going to give my disclaimer. I'm neutral on Jackson. I've not looked at it enough to know, you know, we've looked at Epstein on this channel very deeply and we're just, uh, so don't shoot the interviewer on these responses about Michael Jackson because half the world love him, half the world think that he's a predator. Um, what, what's your take on Jackson? I've, I've worked with some of his victims. Um, so I know uh, at the very least, um, I'm 100% convinced that he was uh, a paedophile. Um, then you have, you know, it's a really grotesque discussion to have and, and probably we won't do it here, but we're on the spectrum. Um, but for sure, he was uh, showing pornography to little boys and encouraging them to masturbate and masturbating in front of them for sure. Good grief. Um, <laughs> people, it's a bold people... assertion. That's not going to win me any followers, is it? <laughs> well, it will with half of the people. 
Um, <laughs> so you said, you know, worries on the spectrums are, are going to be a big, long discussion. We've just got two minutes left. Could you paraphrase that? Well, people then will, oh, his own victims will also say he wasn't, you know, I've only, I've only worked with two, but like uh, that he was a very kind and very gentle man. So <laughs> it wouldn't, it wouldn't, wouldn't do him any favors in prison, wouldn't save him anything in prison, but um, there are, it was, it was brought up in the documentary about him as to whether he was violent, like violently, let's just say it, violently sodomizing kids. And it was claimed that he was in the documentary. So that's where people sometimes go on to uh, split hairs over it. But, but I mean, as far as I would be concerned, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, I mean, he created a paedophile palace and then invited small boys to stay the night at his house as a, as a 30 year old man. So, you know, there's no, I'm, I'm not confused by the fact that his music is great. And there's no confusion for me. <laughs> It is absolutely bizarre. Huge thank you to Richard for coming on. We're going to put your links in the description box below the video. How would you like people to reach out to you and follow you? What socials are you on? Um, I'm active on YouTube. I have, uh, there's, if you just put Richard Grandin into YouTube, I have several channels, depending on what people want, they can select from there, but just, just put my name into YouTube and, and you'll find me. All right. Absolutely brilliant, man. hope you uh, enjoy it out there and um, take care if you ever end up in witness. <laughs> Thanks very much, mate. Thank you. All right, Speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, here we go then. Over to Chris Hansen and Kai Zen Bickle, who are going to be talking about the Nygaard situation. So we just need you guys. You guys are in the room now. We just need you guys to turn your cameras on, please. Chris is an executive producer of Unseemly, the investigation of Peter Nygaard. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this evening. And then Kai, process started with Nygaard in May 2019 when he caught a glimpse of the monster. He blew the whistle on Nygaard within his organization, but then he began to feel the wrath of Nygaard and his corporate enablers. People wouldn't talk about Nygaard, but Kai ended up watching tons of Chris Hansen videos you've seen to catch a predator. And to catch a predator, you know, those clips, tens of millions of views on on YouTube, I've I've sat there gripped watching a lot of that stuff. Hey, Jeremy. Hello, Kai. It's, the video is just white. It's not showing anything. Can you can you hear me, Kai? Connected and reconnected or something. Yeah, we got to get um, Chris to turn his camera on, and Kai, we can hear you, but we just can't see you right now. It's having a little uh, trouble with my DMs. All right, it's so we got Chris. We can see you perfectly, Chris. Thank hey, you for joining How are us you today. Absolutely doing great. Awesome. Where are you based? I'm in New York City. Are you on, are you on full level lockdown like us or can you go out well, and about? We can get out and about. They're reopening restaurants 25% uh, indoors Friday. Outdoors still, but as you can imagine in 32 degrees Celsius, I mean uh, Fahrenheit, excuse me, 
Um, I'll not try to do the conversion. It's a, it's a little chilly for outdoor dining, but uh, we'll get back to normal one of these. I we've got, over there. Yeah, we've got a tiny little bit of snow, but it melted today. So, yeah. but I've watched tons of your content on YouTube. Well, I see you've you. got your, you've got your own just channel. By for a second. I'm going to put video, the, that uh, link in the description <laughs> box. Oh, that's awesome! Thank you. Yeah, we're, um, we're, we're waiting for Kai to come in here. He's having a, a technical difficulty right now. Well, while we wait for him to come in, do you want to tell us a bit about Unseemly, the investigation of Peter Nygaard? Yeah, it's really something, as you know, uh, Sean, it's out on uh, Discovery Plus right now, the, the new Discovery streaming service. And Peter Nygaard is a multi-multi-millionaire fashion designer, uh, mostly jeans. A lot of what he creates has been sold at mid-level department stores like Dillard's here in the United States, but around the world. And, and he has been very successful and amassed a fortune. But over the last half of a century, he has left behind a legacy of brutal assault, sexual deviancy, criminal, criminally, and uh, predatory behavior that is now finally being exposed for the first time. And people have been looking into it and trying to report it. Uh, but he has been so successful with throwing money around, silencing his victims, and um, um, intimidating people that he's gotten away with it for a long time. And finally, finally, uh, law enforcement has been able to make a case. The indictment's coming out of New York City uh, here. And uh, he's being held, as you probably know, in Winnipeg in a jail pending extradition. He was denied bail just last week. Uh, he was arrested on December 15th. And, and shortly thereafter, our series was announced. Kai, you know, his son, one of his sons, bravely, as you mentioned in your prelude, um, not only took part in the federal and local investigation here by the Human Trafficking Task Force, but, you know, took part in the documentary, which is eye-opening. And if people haven't seen it yet, you need to go check it out because it lays this out in a way that is just so compelling and so important um, to see. And, and I've been working on it personally for about two years after having gotten tipped about it uh, from some investigators who I know who have been retained to work on the case. And this all started, Sean, essentially uh, because of a billionaire battle over beachfront property in the Bahamas. And Nygaard had upset his neighbor, Louis Bacon, who's a billionaire hedge fund uh, director here in New York City. They got into it and, and Nygaard was brutal and, and vicious in terms of leveling allegations against uh, Bacon. And they went back and forth. And in the course of the civil matter, um, all these allegations were uncovered about, you know, rape and drugging and, and underage girls at the compound in, in the Bahamas. And you see the compound in the documentary and, and just very, very detailed and bizarre allegations up to and including forcing some of his sexual assault victims to have abortions, harvesting the stem cells to be injected into Nygaard's own body as a sort of fountain of youth. Bloody hell, I didn't know that gory detail. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite something. So, you know, we're not the only ones to have reported on it. The New York Times did some work on it and, and CBC up in Canada has done, you know, a work on it. But, you know, for the first time we were able to piece it all together. And we also, um, we're able to <clears throat> talk to Nygaard's former creative director, videographer, and get, you know, hundreds of hours of videos 
chronicling, you know, life behind the scenes. But um, as I mentioned, you know, Kai played a big role in the authenticity and the importance of this reporting, because how often in a case like this, do you get somebody who's the son of the target, who ultimately has this seminal moment and decides, oh my God, even though this is my father, I've got to do something about this. And not only speaks out on the show, but is an integral part of assisting the FBI and other law enforcement authorities in the investigation. And I can't, you know, give enough credit to Kai for being involved in both, both projects. Um, and huge, huge thank you to Kai. He's in the Zoom now. And yeah, your bravery, man. What led you then to that moment to go after him and expose him like that? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Sean, I, I've done a lot of research on you recently, and I applaud you for your work and what you've been doing and bringing all this attention to these things. And Chris has been a hero um, of mine and an incredible um, force for good in this situation. You're asking me um, what led me to do it. Um, well, I'll tell you what. So Peter Nygaard is a, a master of deception and he's been compartmentalizing information all his life. Uh, so that's, there's a lot of reasons why he wasn't brought to justice sooner. Um, he's very, very good at hiding things. I knew him as my father and he made sure that our relationship was really a father-son type of relationship. So I would get limited exposure to him and the persona that he would put out there for his children and, and um, I guess you would say the general public is this hardworking, flamboyant, you know, playboy lifestyle, all transparent. Um, you know, he would push out there. He's the most trusted around women, the most trusted around children. These are like the narratives that he would uh, perpetuate. And uh, I, I didn't really end up, as I got older, um, growing up, I wasn't really, all the kids of his grew up with their mothers, for one thing. So we weren't really growing up with him. We were lucky to grow up with our moms. And uh, I ended up spending a little bit of time with him after college, trying to work for the fashion company, stopped doing that, went down my own path. And as I got older, basically I spent less and less time with him because it was a difficult guy to be around. Um, and I basically uh, stopped by for a random dinner party in May of 2019, just to say hi, catch up, and at that dinner party, that's when I, I caught a glimpse of what I would, would call the monster that uh, was really there. And um, I was watching him very, very closely and uh, just out of respect to the people involved, one of them's a minor and, and they've kind of like reached out to me and they don't really wanna have this story like perpetuated too much because it hurts um, them. So out of respect to them, I, I'll leave it pretty vague, but, but uh, you know, he had about 20 people at the dinner table there was a transition from dinner to cards. Everyone was up shuffling. I was paying very close attention to him. He was sitting next to someone that was underage, um, very underage. And, uh, and I, I felt like I noticed him like almost flirting with her, you know, like whispering little things in her ear at dinner and stuff. And, um, and, uh, and, and basically I, I felt like I saw him kind of grab her next to him and I couldn't actually see his hand, but it appeared to me that he was, sort of copying a feel or, or touching her over her clothes in a highly inappropriate way, just for a, a little window of, you know, five to 10 seconds. But all my spider senses went off and I got her away from him and the whole thing. And I, I stood up next to him and he didn't notice that I um, had noticed that. 
And I looked him in his eyes and he looked at me and he started to talk to me about some random, you know, business thing that we would, we would talk about. And it was like all of the walls breaking down around me. All I saw was his fate. Like I saw him and it was like everything in the house starting to like crumble. And I think that maybe in my like psychology, it was, it was the shattering of the image of the father I thought I had, the man I thought I knew that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, after that, you know, um, I left that house thinking that, oh my God, my dad's a monster. Like, who is this guy? Uh, could all of these rumors be true? Could, because you, you hear things, there's whispers, there's things that you can't, but he didn't have any charges on him. He didn't have anything on him. He had no criminal, he still has no criminal record officially, believe it or not, even with all this. Um, so I did go through a state of, of, uh, yeah, I guess there was a little depression that went through there. I mean, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to deal, uh, how to approach exposing him. Right. So I, I mean, I mentioned in the, in the sort of beginning that, yeah, I started to watch a lot. I ended up watching a lot of Chris Hansen videos and things like that. And to catch a prayer, I was thinking about maybe I should set up a sting. Um, I didn't realize uh, at this time that Chris was already working, working on the case. Um, he started in, in March. I, I got really activated in May. And then by the time we got to, um, and of course, I blew the whistle to the, the people in, in the organization. It turns out they're all just his enablers anyway. I didn't get anywhere. Um, they punished me in every way that they knew how. I basically felt the wrath of uh, what I think others would feel a taste of. And, uh, and once we got to February and the brave women in the Bahamas and the civil attorneys, Greg Gutzler and Lisa Haba, um, Fred Smith, who was one of the key attorneys as well, and... Um, this was also supported by Lewis Bacon, um, who actually is a hero in the story because he uh, helped to bring to light this, uh, these, these terrible crimes. And um, once that came out, there was like a floodgate of information in February that came out. It was the civil, the civil suit came out. It was also the FBI raiding the Los Angeles and New York offices. So uh, clearly the FBI must've been investigating for a while if they were gonna take that step of, of raiding the offices. There was also a book that came out called The Predator King. So it was like this massive floodgates of information that had been hidden um, and suppressed. And even when I was uh, in that time from May to February, May 2019 to February 2020, when I was asking people, people wouldn't talk. And I think that there was the, the fear of, of the lawsuits. Yeah, that's one of the tactics from these powerful predators is the lawsuits. The legal system is a very difficult one to overcome. Um, for the suppression of, of, of information. Cause if you dare to speak out against someone then you better have deep, po deep pockets. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. That's the, that's the problem. Um, and then just very briefly, I, uh, Nygaard, I reached out to him and his people. They told me it was all a lie. Um, he swore everything to me, swore on his mother, swore on our, our relationship, swore on everything he possibly could that it was all a lie please son, please son, trust me. Like that whole thing, go out and publicly back him is what he wanted me to do. Um, don't read anything. It's all lies. Um, I told him that wasn't possible. I was going to read everything and try to get to the truth, whatever it was, because these were horrible accusations, very serious accusations. And uh, rape is a special kind of evil. So when you're talking about rape or pedophilia, it doesn't matter if it's your mom, dad, sister, brother, uncle, it doesn't matter. If you're, you, you have to figure it out, um, protect innocence. And uh, by the time when I started really investigating then, February, March, April, and, uh, and, and cranked it up to a level 10, uh, uh, I started to get information because people, people began to talk. 
And, uh, and by the time I'd got to April, I was convinced that not only were the accusations true, but that he was a dangerous criminal and that he was still very active. And during that process, the idea of the father that I thought I had, I realized it was based on a foundation of lies. So I, I, I kind of mourned the loss of that father. And I sort of went through my own process of like a funeral for that, that person. Um, but then what I was left with was this monster and the monster um, became my arch enemy, my arch nemesis. And the problem, the problem that I had was that I knew, I know his mind enough to know that he was going to flee the country if he ever thought that charges were gonna, if he actually thought he was gonna be arrested, he would flee the country. And he would set up shop in a jurisdiction where it wouldn't matter if the DOJ in the, in the United States had charges, wouldn't matter if Canada had charges because he could get out of the jurisdiction, go set up shop somewhere with a pot of money offshore. And that was my worst fear, worst nightmare. That's what kept me up at night because in that scenario, he doesn't have to answer for anything. He gets to set up on some cushy place. And I don't even want to imagine the horrors that he would inflict on innocence um, for the rest of his life in there. So that kept me up. Um, that's when I busted out the art of war, <laughs> started uh, reading that. Um, friends close, enemies closer. I kept communication lines open with him and his one of his top enablers. And that's when um, I got a hold of Greg Gutzler and Lisa Haba, the civil attorneys. I got connected to the DOJ. I reached out to the RCMP. I reached out to all those things. And then it was just a, a team effort of constant collaboration and full focused, almost obsession to um, do everything possible to get justice until finally he was arrested in um, December 14th of 2020. And, and luckily they didn't give him bail and that was a whole process too of, of supporting the uh the bail no bail efforts so in short summary that's a bit of the window of what happened well everybody in the live chat is saluting your bravery right now and many fans of to catch a predator in there as well uh, before the next question is there anything you'd like to add to that chris well i think kai really you know encapsulated you know the importance of his role in all this and the difficulty of someone coming forward. And, and you know, you, you wonder how could somebody get away with this for so long? And it is uh, the sense of impunity that he had, Sean, and it's, it's the insulation he had and the money. I mean, literally his New York office is eight blocks from where I'm sitting right now. I used to walk by it every day for the, you know, nearly two years that we had been, uh, you know, investigating this. In fact, when the FBI raided the office with their task force, we had a hard time finding a crew available because we found out last minute. I went down there and shot the video with, with the cell phone camera. And you know, this, this thing is something you live with every day. And, and there were so many ups and downs in the investigation. And, and I'm just very grateful that everybody, you know, including Kai took part in it. And, and, and I tell you, these, these lawyers uh, who represented the, the victims here, uh, they didn't do it for the money. They did it because it was the right thing to do. And, and, and it's amazing to me, even having been in this business for 40 years, covering crime primarily for 40 years, it amazes me how much it takes to move something forward that should be so obvious and so easy, but it's just not. And, and, and this was a Herculean effort and it's not over yet. And, it's, and people need to know that and read into it and watch the documentary because so much went into it on the part of so many people to expose such dire evil. 
um, it, it, it's a story like no other I've ever been involved with. In the documentary, did you research his relationship with Prince Andrew? We didn't get far into that at all. Um, obviously, there's been discussion of you know Prince Andrew visiting the compound in the Bahamas. Um, there was so much other material to explore. It's interesting. Obviously, we know you know that that Andrew shows up in the uh, Epstein investigation. Clearly, it's less documented in the Nygaard case. But you also have to remember that a lot of people visited that compound in the Bahamas. Some were clued into what was going on with the activity. Some just wanted to see this amazing uh, piece of property that, that Nygaard had built. I mean, Oprah Winfrey did a show down there. She didn't know what was going on with Nygaard behind the scenes. A lot of people visited uh, luminaries, politicians. Um, and so, you know, we don't really get too far into the Prince Andrew angle. Yeah, and if I could jump in on that one. Sure. Um, yeah, that's actually a point that I, I kind of want to bring up is that uh, there are these like celebrity photos. I noticed you had a picture of Michael Jackson and Peter Nygaard together on this. And I, I get it. The idea, it, you know, obviously there's there's very concerning things there um, about a connection. My understanding with that photograph of Michael Jackson at the property was that he came by for a tour of one of the world's most unique houses and Nygaard wasn't even there. Otherwise, Nygaard would have been in that picture for sure. And uh, they took the picture and then what, what happened, you know, psych, a, a psychiatrist would say that he's a malignant narcissist. You know, he's, a, he's always pushing and, and propagating this image of, of him as a celebrity and whatnot. So he, he would take pictures with celebrities and then kind of like post them on the website and do all these things. And um, I don't know if he ever even met Michael Jackson. Um, I'm not saying I know for sure, but it never was coming up that there was any connection with Michael Jackson. I feel like I would have heard that because he would have been really talking about it. And um, and for that matter with Andrew, uh, I think there there was some friendliness there and I don't know how deep, deep it went, but I can just tell you that probably like 80% of the pictures of him with celebrities are or celebrities at the house are people visiting what was the one of the world's most unique houses, if not the most unique house before it burned down. Um, and what Chris was talking about and what kind of the meat and potatoes of this whole thing is, is that um, the level of evil and sickness, when you get down into it about this situation and, 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 and rape of women and children, um, that Nygaard was a bit of a, a, a loner too, um, just in general. It was kind of his style. He always marched to the beat of his own drummer. He had a he had a circle of friends that were his party buddies, I would call them, the guys that would go out on these trips. And these are some of the people that you're actually seeing in, in Unseemly. <laughs> they, they sort of show people that are promoting the pamper party kind of experience and those types of things. And there's also, for that matter, a list of co-conspirators as described by the survivors on that 57-woman civil suit. And there you'll find many of the Nygaard um, executives, most trusted executives and uh, other uh, names. And I think that in terms of connection to these horrific crimes, a great place to start looking now would be at that civil suit and the names that are popping up there as 
said by the survivors. So you've got a slew of questions coming in about the family side of this. Victoria mm. Haig has asked, can you please ask Kai if his mother knew and supported him? And my question is, earlier you said there were multiple siblings raised by the mothers. Has this yeah. now caused a family divide whereby everybody has been forced to take sides? A little bit. There was, there was, when this was really first starting and word got out that it was kind of like team Kai versus team Nygaard kind of thing, there was splits. And um, I was sort of championed and also uh, uh, condemned for leading the charge against him in at, at certain aspects of this, especially after September, 2020, when I made it public uh, to him too, that I was against him when I had that uh, Nygaard is a flight risk and a, and a predator story come out in the CBC. Um, well, interesting point here. Uh, it started with my, my mom and him were together for 14 years. She was his common law wife. She started, uh, with him before he had a, made a dollar. Uh, she had three children. Um, she, by the time she left, I was three, but we were all in therapy afterwards. Uh, she was lied to, manipulated, verbally, mentally abused. It was a, it was a really difficult um, relationship. And uh, he obviously is cheating and doing all these things. I mean, he's flying around, right? Doing this executive thing. She's at home with the kids kind of thing. So uh, that was all very troubling. And then just to give you an idea, the master of, or the level of deception from him is that he was able to hide children from the family. First, it was me and my two siblings. And then one day I, I we would go to Nygaard Key for like special trips, like show up for like Christmas break or like a, like a week in the summer when school was out. Right. And so one some you know, one summer I'm there and, uh, and they say, Hey, you got a brother that's showing up today. I have a brother. What, you know, like uh, it's, uh, you have to make a choice whether you're mad about that or, or you're going to accept that. And my attitude was, was that, Hey, I'm a guest at this guy's house. He's my dad. I'm trying to like fit in and, and give him a you know, pure love kind of thing. So I'm just going to accept that and just say, okay, I guess I have a brother. Right. And uh, so I, I found out I had two brothers that were like 10 years old and I was 15 from two different mothers. And he hid that, but also his executives hid that. He had some key executives to handle his personal life. And so they know, and they know me, and we're all interacting, but they don't want to tell me, right? So um, as we went along, I think right now in the documentary, it says that I know of nine siblings. So I think there's a total of 10 of us. I've met nine of them. I've heard I have an older brother through the media <laughs> in, uh, in Canada somewhere. And um, I haven't heard from probably half of my siblings but I have uh, through the course of this, and I'm sure if I talk to them, they're, they're just going to be like, oh, my God, kind of thing. Um, but we all had different relationships, and I was the most entrenched in, in sort of like the, the, the fight of this. And, uh, but my two brothers um, who ended up filing against him in the summertime um, for the arranged statutory rapes that he did, um, on them. That information came out when one of the younger ones came forward, confided in another brother that this thing had happened to him. That brother said, oh my God, the same thing happened to me. And not only that, it happened 15 years ago. And with the same woman you're talking about, I mean, put that wow. in your mind, like that's crazy. Wow. And so we all got together and um, decided the best course of action would be to file the civil suit, even though that they knew that there wouldn't be a probably a financial thing for it. They were doing it because it was the right thing to do. And every time you filed a suit, 
more survivors would come forward, more survivors would come forward. And that was the, that was the whole thing behind the scenes was that he is getting ready to be a flight risk. We have to build up the criminal case against him so that he can actually be arrested before he flees. So what I was doing was talking to them. I originally was going to be on that civil suit as the guardian, but then I was like, no, I probably don't want to do that because I don't want to show him that I'm that against him. And we, every time that like, let's say a survivor would come forward you make the calls, you arrange it. Uh, there's jurisdiction loopholes they were taking advantage of that you can't file criminally and all this stuff. So when you actually had one that did qualify as a criminal complaint, you get that filed and then you find out it's going to take months and months and months before you'd actually able to make an arrest. So there was this huge, huge uh, behind the scenes um, issue with the, the rules about flight, uh, about being able to flee a country is a massive loophole for predators that basically if you're under a criminal investigation for heinous crimes, you're able to leave. You, so they, you actually have to be arrested before they could say, actually, sorry, you don't have the luxury of taking off to this country in another jurisdiction because your passport's been red flagged. That's what it should be. If you're under an investigation, you shouldn't be allowed to leave. I think that's a more than reasonable request. Um, but we found out that he was able to leave. And, um, and that was the big concern. I later found out, by the way, uh, like a month ago, that one summer when I was down in the Bahamas and uh, I was getting along with this uh, female that was there, like we went snorkeling a few times and stuff and, and, whatnot. She confided to me later that Nygaard had been heavily pressuring her to rape me. And I was 13 and she was 27 and she just had enough high uh, moral compass not to do it. So thank God. But I, I was wondering why wasn't I targeted? Well, it turns out I was targeted. There's been a couple of women that have come forward now that said that he was heavily pressuring them to rape me as a child and even younger than the other two. One brother was 14. That woman was 40 at the time, over 40. And then the 15 years before the same woman, he was 15 and she was mid twenties. My thing was going to be 13 and she was 27 different woman, but same idea. So um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at with it. And uh, I think though, in general on the family question is that I don't think any of these kids that, that are the siblings have, none of them have been uh, complicit or enablers or any of that kind of stuff. He really kept it separate and they're, they're, they're good people, you know? Um, it just turns out that I was really in the trenches and then my two brothers acted heroically as well that filed in that suit. Um, they also filed criminally the ones that could. So they've done a lot of really good things in the, in the backdrop of this. Wow, fascinating. Chris, what do you hope to achieve by creating this kind of content? Are you looking for a full indictment of the co-conspirators because something of this magnitude multiple people were involved are there any of the co-conspirators you know you're looking to go after next well i think that you know as in the epstein case you look at julian maxwell you are very familiar with that case he didn't do it alone he had enablers he had co-conspirators as you say and and that's all a part of the official investigation and it will be a continuing part of our journalistic investigation. We're not through with this yet. We're, we're just getting started. And, and we have material that didn't even go into the, the first uh, four episodes, the first series, if you will. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we're not looking to, you know, as Kai said, the, the children are, are, you know, kids. They tried to believe in their dad as best as possible. They had no role in any of this stuff. They're, they're victims as well. That, that's collateral damage. And I think some of the 
the the women with whom he had the children collateral damage too. I mean, you you look, I mean, for instance, in the interview with Beverly Peel, the famous model who had a three-year contract with Nygaard. I mean, she lays it out there as to how she started to see who this guy really was and what he was doing. Uh, there are a lot of people who just didn't know, but there were those who who let it happen, and, and those people should be uh, brought to justice and held accountable. Yes. So you said you had 40 years history of doing crime. What motivates you to go over to uh, going after sexual predators? Well, you know, we had always done investigations into different kinds of, you know, predators, I suppose, financial and psychological and, and sexual predators. But in the beginning with the To Catch a Predator franchise, I had been introduced to the online watchdog group, Perverted Justice, and, and they would put their decoys in chat rooms at the time, this is 16, 17 years ago, on AOL and Yahoo and, and pose these kids with pictures. And if they were hit upon and a date was made, they would post the chats and the, the identity of the, the predator on their website. And I started to think if we could combine their ability to go online as decoys and our ability to wire a house with hidden cameras and microphones, it could be pretty compelling. And so that came about I'm thinking that would it would be a you know a one-off you know investigative story for the Dateline show, and you know all these years later we're still doing these investigations. And 17 years into it, just a, a month and a half ago, we we're in Genesee County, Michigan, and caught five more predators. Wow. Uh, and you know, and these guys recognize me sometimes, and they know who I am. But still, we had a prison guard, a former police officer from Lebanon, a state employee who had done work in the governor's mansion, and a babysitter uh, with a rather bizarre fetish. And so we, we do those. Uh, the current version, Have a Seat with Chris Hansen, are on the YouTube channel, and then they're going to end up in a different format on television very soon, and I'll be able to let you know shortly where that's going to be. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really incredible that it, it's continued for so long, and the technology has changed on both sides. So imagine in the beginning only using chat rooms, nail on Yahoo. Well, today, the proliferation of platforms upon which a predator can approach a child. And in this pandemic lockdown, when kids are online constantly and parents are online doing their work constantly, even in the next room, it creates an environment where it's as toxic and dangerous as ever. And one of the reasons we went back to do the, the podcast, Predators I've Caught, is to look back at these cases and there's a great deal of curiosity as to where you know, these guys are today. So we do that, but also to get into it and relive it. And my theory on all this crime reporting is, is Sean, that if you can get into the mind of a criminal or a predator and understand something about it, then hear the voice of a victim, you can prevent other people from becoming victims. You can prevent the next um, Peter Nygaard from being so prolific. You can prevent the next child from being hit upon online. And it's really about awareness and a dialogue, I think, at the end of the day. Really appreciate you coming on, Chris. We've got a couple of minutes left, so I'll yeah. hand it over to you, Kai, if you've got any closing remarks for the audience this evening. Yeah, just that... Um... I think that if we all work together now on, on solutions, that feels like a good path forward. Um, there's an app called Not Me that I think is is pretty uh, good solution that's come out that allows you to report 
um, incidents that happen in a safe and secure way. I, I think if the Nygaard situation had that, it might have helped this. Um, there's also uh, post-traumatic stress disorder treatments. My background has been kind of health and wellness, and uh, there's some really good PTSD treatments that are coming out. There's an organization called maps.org. They're getting a 70% uh, cure rate um, for PTSD um, using a, a basically a clinical environment for a ketamine assisted uh, psychoanalysis experiment or experience where you revisit the trauma and there's a neural, uh, neural dampening that occurs that helps. And I, I just say that because so many of these, one of the reasons why rape is such a um, horrific crime is because it's a replayed, you know, it's, it's, it's the nightmares, it's the night terrors. Uh, I've talked to so many survivors and it's just heartbreaking how much it's, it's, it's ruined their lives. So the treatment part I think is important because there's still people that are even suicidal in the Nygaard um, situation. And, uh, and then I think the loopholes, you know, the, the, the jurisdiction loopholes, he took advantage of a, a major jurisdiction loophole that we need to close uh, as a team effort, I think. Maybe it's a five-year plan for all of us, but you, you, because he's set up in the Bahamas, you fly someone in, let's say from the UK or Finland or Canada or the USA, if they get raped in the Bahamas by him, first of all, they can't really report it in the Bahamas because he was holding the passport and doing all that stuff. But even if they did report it in the Bahamas, he had the police in his pocket. So you couldn't really do that. So they go home to Canada or the USA or wherever they go. And they say, hey, I just got raped by Peter Nygaard, a Canadian, let's say Canada, for example. And uh, they say, hey, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't file that here. You can't, you can't file criminally against him. You have to file it in Bahamas. Well, that's a major loophole that he took advantage of. And that's why he was able to continue to bring people there because it's basically a safe haven for him to rape, we find out, right? And then you have that other loophole that if you're under criminal investigation, even we knew that charges had been filed and that they were sitting on the Crown Prosecutor's desk, but still he was able to leave if he wanted to. Mm. So it, that, those are major things that I think if we can work together on, and then the other part is, is now it's the enablers, because what's happened is if you, if you obviously I'm paying very close attention to the bail hearing and all that stuff, the, the authorities, um, and by the way, there was also a big effort um, with me and, and one of my brothers on slowing down the liquidation of some of the Nygaard assets, because he was trying, they were, his enablers were helping him liquidate assets to move it offshore so that he could go or that it goes to them and not where it's supposed to go to the survivors or the authorities or the people who are owed debts or the lawyers, right? That's really where the money should go now. And, um, and so there was that big effort behind the scenes to uh, do that. But in the trial uh, about his, um, whether or not he was gonna get me bail, one of the points that the authorities brought up was that two companies that he had, um, Edson's and Browse, which is what they mentioned by name, have liquidated $70 million worth of assets in the past couple of months. And if you look at actually the, um, there's all these filings of who the officers are. And if it's always the same few officers and they're listed on the civil case as co-conspirators, I mean, that's, that's a red flag, right? And so in a way I'm like, okay, we got the criminal, we got the bad, like the main bad guy, but is the getaway car taken off with the loot in the back, right? And so I am happy that at least right now, charges have been laid by the DOJ 
Um, they include racketeering and organized crime unit they have on that, and they're evoking a RICO status so that they can go after the executives. I would be very nervous if I was those executives. And there's more and more articles coming out naming some of those names. And I think that that's, that's very important, but also understand that they're sitting back there with their lawsuit machine because they have 70 million. And if you dare to say something about them, even if it's true, you're going to get this big lawsuit. And that's also something we got to address because that stifles so much of this whole situation all the time is the threat of lawsuit by the rich and powerful, even if it's about exposing the truth. Well, I thank you both for coming on. I thank you for your bravery in exposing these monsters. You guys really are on the front line of the war against the predators and all of the chat, all the people watching this right now are 100% behind you. So we will include whatever links uh, you would like in the below this video and we'll have people go over and check out your content and get on your social. So huge thank you again um, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Kai. Thank you, Sean, for all the good work you're doing. See Thank you very much. All right. See you guys. Cheers. All right. So we're now bringing in our next guests and they are the behavior panel. And there is a slew of them. So we've got to get four guys in all at once. Let's see. There we go. Scott, Gregory, Chase, Mark. And if you didn't see our previous work, hey, how's it going, Scott? Hey. Wow, I look like I'm on I have lupus or something. Hey, Sean. <laughs> hey, Gregory, how's it going? Good, good. We meet again after the brilliant work um, we did with Sonia on the McCann case and the Prince Andrew interview last time. Hello, Mark. Hello, Chase. Hey yeah. Hey, Sean. How you doing? Thanks for having us yeah. back, hey, Sean. Thanks for coming back. Yeah. Really, really appreciate you joining us. Um, your videos we put out last time have just got rave reviews. Every week we're getting messages, bring these guys back on. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. And um, tonight we're going to start out discussing Michael Jackson. But before we do so, um, would, would any of you like to just give a little bit, say a little bit about what you guys do, just to reintroduce? Sure, sure. So I'm Mark Bowden. I'm an expert in human behavior and body language and I help people all over the world to stand out, win trust and gain credibility every time they communicate, including some of the leaders of the G7. Greg. Tell us about you. Greg Hartley, I'm a former Army interrogator, interrogation instructor, resistance to interrogation instructor. I've written 10 books on body language and behavior. I spend most of my time on Wall Street and corporate America today. Scott. I'm Scott Rouse, I'm a body language expert and analyst and I train law enforcement in the military in interrogation and body language. And I didn't think we were going live right now. I'm up walking around <laughs> Oh, thanks, Chase. <laughs> hey, I'm Chase Hughes. I'm a behavioral expert, did 20 years in the U.S. military. Now I train intelligence agencies and the general public in persuasion, influence, and interrogation. So really, pre really appreciate you coming on, all of you. The live chat is going absolutely crazy. Michael Jackson, it's such a polarizing subject, and I've got to give my disclaimer to start out with. Half the world love Michael, half the world... <laughs> think he's a predator i am a neutral interviewer do not shoot the interviewer please people who are watching this i'm just trying to research this from a neutral perspective with some experts let's hear what they've got to say and let's form our own conclusions so who, who would like to start then? i'll hop in i'll hop in so remember that what we have just done on our channel at thebehaviorpanel.com is to look at a select set of videos and the videos included michael jackson talking about plastic surgery where he was clearly not telling the truth, but that's okay. 
It had nothing to do with sexual assault on children or any of that. But we went through, how does he look when he's telling you something and how does he behave? That was all we looked at. In the second part, we looked at two accusers. And I will tell you that when you look at accusers, you have to remember anyone who's recalling something from childhood is going to have a skewed memory to start with. So we may be more forgiving of people who are re recalling a childhood memory than we would be of somebody who said something happened last Tuesday. We interviewed a guy who saw a UFO when he was nine years old. Well, I'm not going to say he should have the same memory as a guy who saw a UFO two days ago, right? So you have to be cautious when you're taking this into account. And don't shoot us either, guys. We're looking at what we see. And Chase is really good at saying we're not the forensics panel with the behavior panel. We're looking at what people are saying with their body language when they're talking. So that's so my sure, we've, we've had much of the same experience that you've had. You know, there's there's one, you know, side who think, you know, guilty, whatever. There's another side who say innocent, whatever. What we can give you is our appreciation of the videos that we looked at, and then only you, who may have way more um, uh, information than we have about these individual cases, can put this together, this intelligence gathering, and, and help make up your decision about what you think. Again, just like you, Sean, we look at what we've got, and we're neutral about it. Yeah. We look at one thing. We look. Most people think we're on there solving, like Chase always says, like think we're solving a case. No, we're looking at these specific clips. We're telling what we see in these specific clips. Period. That's it. And people go off on it. I think at this point, uh, I think Mark's a devil worshiper. Yeah. And then uh, Chase <laughs> is being paid by who are you being paid by, Chase? The McCanns are the ones. The McCanns. Yeah. McCanns are paying. And then Greg is some kind of spy or something. And I can't. Oh, yeah, no, I, I work for Soros. That, I work for Soros. <laughs> Soros. That's yeah. right. That's I, I keep getting these checks, you know. <laughs> yeah. So if memory is malleable and we have seen examples of people getting fact fed in investigations, interviews, interrogations, and those facts, you know, filter in and memory's malleable. And then if, if that memory is believed by that person, and that person then tells that story. How can we tell if the body language through the body language what is really going on? Well, it's more complex than just body language. When we say we do body language, we also do behavior. So, for example, when people lie, they're going to make up that lie to the best of their ability. And Scott and I talk about a thing called liar's loop. The longer you have to prepare, the better your lie will be, and the more you'll deconflict it with your life. Most people aren't that smart about lies. They don't understand it's a long-term cycle they have to uphold. And so they get in the mechanics of the lie. They think of the big stuff and they forget all the little pieces. And your life is a photo album. All those pictures tie together. So if I said I was Miss America in 1972, well, I don't have any of the trappings of that. So it's going to fall apart pretty quickly. And I'll no matter say how that good my lie was. Every time you recall a memory, if you, so if you think of a childhood birthday when you got a, a really cool bike or something like that, and think of that birthday party, just touching that memory one time changes it. So if you are speaking to somebody who has a false memory, they're not going to show much, if any, uh, behavioral indicators of deception because we're typically measuring stress or conflict, psychological or cognitive conflict when we're talking about that. And when it comes to the Michael Jackson case here and, and people liking it or not, I would say emotion has a drastic uh, deteriorating effect on critical thinking. And that, uh, that's one thing that we can all universally agree on. If we're emotional about something, our critical thinking is lowered to the floor. 
So it's hard, especially if, you know, we're talking to a family member or somebody that we feel personally close to. It, it uh, tends to lower that critical factor. And, yeah, and in, in the case of Jackson, of you know, you've got somebody who has raised himself in, in many of his fans' views to literally a, uh, a deified level. You have somebody who would put 777 on, on, an, on the side of their arm, which is, you know, ultimately saying, I am of a, a Christ-like status. And so it's very hard, just as if we were to do some kind of body language around, you know, Jesus, if there was video of him, I've heard there might be, but uh, I've not seen it yet, okay? <laughs> there would be a whole school of people where nothing we could deliver them would ever convince them of anything else than they already believed. And with, with Michael Jackson, it's very, very similar. There is often nothing we can say that will uh, deviate people from their belief about him, belief guilty or belief innocent. Uh, so, you know, what is, is extraordinary is the love and and hate that people have for for Jackson. You know, we're maybe somewhere in between. I think he's just an extraordinary musician, an incredible mover, an incredible dancer. I don't love him. Well, another thing is he's so far into his story, be it true or false. If anything changes on his part, then we start digging up. We start digging in there and seeing what's going on. Because from the from the time where he first started being accused of these things, stories stayed the same, very same story. However, when we look at the body language of, of, for example, the two guys we looked at in our, in our uh, video, we saw truth. We saw mostly, I mean, 99% of it looked honest to us. Congruent. Some... What we saw is congruency, right? We saw that mm -hmm. all the messaging was yeah. together. Now, given we're not scrutinizing, we don't have control. As a matter of fact, we have reached out to one of them and asked him to come on the show and he's considering it. So if he does, well, let make sure you know. But if we scrutinize and we control the questions, it changes how that works. One thing to Mark's point that I think is important, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a big deal in human behavior. And once somebody wedges themselves into the fandom of any person, regardless who it is, and they know more about them than you do, and then you assault that belief that this is a, a walking saint, they have no choice. It is in, it is part of their persona to defend that person because that's now you're attacking their differentiator, you're attacking, you're attacking their esteem. So we understand that people are gonna come after us, you know, and, and whatever you feel like saying, that, you know, that's your choice. We are not haters, to use the word from yesterday's video. We just are doing a thing. We're looking at the body language of that person in that frame and telling you what we see. So. so we're seeing Jackson come out over and over again and say how much he just loves being around the children. They're so innocent in this soft voice, almost as if he's an overgrown child himself. How truthful was he being with those statements? We're looking well, at a personality type who doesn't overgrown. have... Sorry, you go, you go ahead, Scott. I was going to say, we're looking at a personality type who grew up in an odd situation or an irregular situation. So the situations he was in, obviously he didn't have a normal childhood. Obviously, he's, his, his development emotionally, his, his development in so many ways for his brain are different than most, most everyone else's. There's maybe three other people in history who've had the same kind of, of uh, childhood experiences as he's had. You know, I'm sure kings and you know, pharaohs and things like that have, have it similar. You know, Korean dictators, I'm sure they, they have a very similar uh, situation. But in that situation, he doesn't know how to deal with people. So when he does get into trouble for doing something, he deals with it from that perspective. There's one interesting thing where he was talking to a child in a one of his interviews. They were interviewing um, him, interviewing Michael and a, and a little child that he was talking with, uh, a little child that he was hanging out with all the time. 
and as he talked to him, he said to the kid, the interviewer was talking and the kid said, yeah, he's four years old. He's four, which tells us that he said, Michael said to the kid, yeah, I'm like you, I'm four years old. That's the way he approaches it. And he says different things like, like, like Greg pointed out in, in our video that, that take you back to things he's told these kids. They're just parroting what he said, which also helps nail in, in the idea that he wasn't being honest in, in, that, in his questioning. Yeah, I mean, people will explain themselves often by the iconography that they put around them. And Peter Pan is is hugely linked with Jackson. And there is the icon of uh, a personality that has stood still, is in a fantasy island world, uh, Neverland, and has stood still. He's literally telling us you know, in statues and the world he creates, the personality that he has, essentially. So, so it's no mystery who you've got, I think, with, with him. Now, does that mean he's uh, an abuser of children? I frankly don't know that at all. But, you know, that's the evidence that I see as to the personality there. And I will say from a, from a very clinically psychology perspective, he does not meet the profile of a child molester. He, does, he meets very few of the criteria. And I think it's just a child that never grew up. And I think genuinely in his mind, he's a kid that wants to hang out with other kids. And I think as a corollary, he's trying to give to them what he did not ever get, like a good childhood. He spent his whole life with his dad making fun of his nose, his skin, his acne growing up. So he had a lot of, uh, a lot of some brute force to his uh, development growing up yeah guys we can't read thoughts if we could we would not be doing this we would be doing stock market stuff or something like that making a lot of money Lottery. instead what what we do is we are saying this is likely what we see and and okay for just a minute suspend any disbelief that this happened or any 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 of that kind of thing ask yourself why people are so upset and why they're looking for this it's because there's a repeat pattern and when we see repeat patterns as people Human brains are designed, and I forget the term, but we're actually designed to find patterns. It's a reason that we see pictures in clouds and all that. Anything that we see, we're going to try to build a pattern. And the reason is because your ancestors who thought a bear was a rock didn't reproduce. Those who thought rocks were bears survived. So that's how, you know, we, we do that. That's what all of us do. So give yourself permission to be okay. It's okay to, to have questions about somebody, even if other people think he's a saint and he's this and he can walk on water. You still get to Use your mind. Use your mind for what it is and look for patterns and make your own. And decisions. I think the interesting thing there, Greg, is we see a pattern that when we uh, communicate with Jackson about that pattern, when an interviewer says, hey, here's the pattern we're seeing. Well, you're hanging out with kids. You, you, you're sleeping in the same bed. Well, maybe not the same bed, but, you know, you're in the same room. And and, and those interviewers say, so society worries about the, that kind of thing, those mm -hmm. kind of patterns. What Jackson says is, that's okay, isn't it? I mean, I'm okay doing that. And society goes, actually, no. Uh, right. So would you stop? And Jackson goes, no, I think I'll carry on, actually. So what happens is, is we get to understand that Jackson is not in the same society as us. And so we start to see, we believe we see an antisocial behavioral disorder. And because we see that, we start to project, well, how bad could that be? Could it be an abusive antisocial behavioral disorder? Well, I don't know that, but certainly it triggers us 
that aren't already extremely biased, it triggers us into a feeling of, I think we're worried about this person and he doesn't see the worry here. Well, because he's been brought up in a whole different society to us. It just doesn't match. He doesn't match us. And talking about the history, as Mark was saying, the history of his interviews, we are seeing the same behaviors when he's being asked about his um, facial reconstruction as we're seeing when he's being asked about uh, hanging out with kids and you know, the improper actions of, in hanging out with kids. So that right there fires off bells and whistles everywhere because all you have to do is compare those two and look at those and see how they just sort of fold together. A lot of the same uh, behavior we're seeing in, bo in both examples. But to go 360, what we want you to do is take the skills that we give you and let you guys who know a lot more about Michael Jackson, I don't have the, the knowledge of him, and go and pull up videos and start comparing. We, when you know he's lying, take that and compare him to when you think he's not lying. And, and, and so, send him our way. Yeah, yeah. We, we ask for videos where you see that he's under high scrutiny and he's answering hard questions. Not one where somebody is saying, hey, you didn't do it, did you? Because that's we know that how people respond to that. The better the video, the more stress we can see, the better. Yeah. So yeah. So I've got a few questions then. So Chase said he didn't. Uh, Michael Jackson did not fulfill the criteria for a pedophile. Does that preclude him from being a pedophile 100%? And my other question is, if the victims are telling the truth, and Jackson's, um, you know, how do we reconcile that with? him not Jackson not fulfilling the criteria for being a pedophile so him him not fitting the the criteria or the the behavioral profile doesn't make much of a difference you're still capable of doing it it just makes it makes you statistically less likely to to be an offender okay so if the victims were appearing truthful then would that therefore increase the likelihood of that could be. But as we said earlier, if, if those were false memories or they, they grew up with someone feeding that stuff to them from a very young age, even looking at a photograph and then so let's say he, a parent shows him a photograph, which is an authority figure. So that's step one in giving someone a false memory is authority. Shows him a photograph of him and Michael Jackson and then tells a story associated with it. It becomes a lot more vivid and it's easier to, to put that in as a real memory. So every one of you, you individually, Sean, you, what's your first memory? And I guarantee you, when you tell me your first memory, it's not your memory altogether. It's pieces that you've had fed to you along the way. Cause you'll say, did it? And your, your parents will go, oh yeah, yeah, that was. And so you get texture and you remember things as an adult, as an adult, you can't remember like a child. Today, if you have children and you want, to, you want an experiment, have them tell you something that happened yesterday and ask them again in four years and see how different that memory is. Okay, and on the subject of um, people who've got really strong beliefs then, a viewer has just sent in a question for you. Is it harder to find deceptions in hardcore Scientologists due to their insane indoctrination? I think in their, they have a gut feeling for a lot of it that, that they know isn't right. But as in any religious situation, you have to overcome things. And that's what the faith part of it is all about. Like I always say, don't get me wrong. I love God. Jesus and I are very tight. Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> and so as I tell you this, keep that in mind. But you, there are certain specific things you have to overcome. And some of the things they talk about in Scientology are so out there. Boy, you really have to be a faithful person to say, okay, I believe these people came from a, a volcano and they're thetans or whatever those things are. But and, then, and all that. I, I think it's tough. 
That depends, because if you're asking a Scientologist about their taxes and they're lying about their taxes, right? You you you're not gonna you're not gonna religion your way out of six hundred million years of evolution. <laughs> Look, the thing well, that I always try and remember, Sean, is that is that lying is one of our most important social skills, as is telling the truth, and the and and what we need to work out is when to do it, when to do either one of those to fit in with the social group we're trying to fit in with. If I want to fit in with us with the Scientology group i better start believing some of the lies that i think they're currently saying else i just can't be part of that group now if i've got no other group to belong to scientology might look like a good bet and hey my brain is going to do the work of going let's just join in with this uh, so that the lie becomes a truth why because it's super useful else i've got no friends or family right you back know? to maslow Yep, yeah, you're back to Maslow, conspiracy theories are that, all of this stuff, guys. We praise on our natural drives. We want to belong, and we, we'll get weirder and weirder to be part of a weird group. That's just the nature of humans. It's how cults work. <laughs> Every cult you ever meet, if you look at Manson, he was the one, the alpha, and everybody emulated him. And you look at any cult, the Jamestown thing, any or Jonestown thing, any of those, there's a weird guy, and everybody always wants to be weird enough to be liked and be his favorite. Greg just did this while talking about conspiracy theories. <laughs> Somebody's going <laughs> to. Yeah, for sure. Sorry, guys. I told you, man. Maslow. I told you. Soros <laughs> isn't the only one paying you. You're Illuminati. See what I'm saying, Listen, Sean? Listen, very careful. I just put my hands on my head in a Masonic symbol. Oh, no. Oh, no. We got another question from the live chat. Does the behavior panel have experience of people with multiple personalities? I do. Could you expand on that? Sure. Uh, a long time uh, ago, maybe 13 years ago, I started studying uh, dissociation and whether or not multiple personalities could be deliberately created in a person. Uh, this was written about by Dr. George Estabrooks in 1954, and he did some research on it. But in the 90s, they found out that there's something called iatrogenic dissociative identity disorder which means it's multiple personality disorder that was accidentally, most of the time, created by a therapist. And a lot of that happens when I go in there and say, well, you know, I'm talking to myself a lot more, just some basic stuff that all of us have. You know, we all like, we all talk to ourselves. Right? Right, guys? Yeah, sure yeah. we do. Just, just oh, join in no, with it. Whatever join makes you comfortable, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> let's say the doctor so gives me a... Uh, <laughs> let's say I get a survey. He gives me a, this little survey. It looks very clinical. And then he reads the results. He's like, oh, you have... This is... You've scored very high. What, what would you like to name that part of you? How often does that part of you... So now his language starts to separate that and make it two things. Is it a male or a female? And it starts asking those kinds of questions. And depending on, there's some factors, but the, the number one leading factor is a psychological factor called fantasy proneness, is what they say, which can lead to the uh, accidental creation of dissociative identity disorder. Wow. I think I'm having if a breakthrough. <laughs> if you want to see something interesting, though, go watch. So there's a Netflix, and I'll try to find it while we're talking. There's a Netflix thing on right now, and there's the the lady who was covering all psychologists who was covering all these people who said they had multiple personality disorders and she talked to shawcross one of my favorite subjects of serial killers 
And this guy's just working her like nobody's business. You can't miss it. He's trying to get away from some of the punishment he's going to get. So you got to be careful with that as well. You know, self-fulfilling prophecy and projection are the hardest thing to get away from when you're doing what we do. Yeah, look, our, our personalities all have different facets to them. My personality, it has, there's a 15-year-old me, there's an eight-year-old me, there's the me before I was married. And they're all, they are, you know, integrated, what we say. They're connected with each other. I know they all exist. And like when I talk about the eight-year-old me, I can see me, you know, in my room as an eight-year-old. I'm connected with it. Now, what if I wasn't connected with those parts That's of me? Well, the eight-year-old might start doing stuff, talking to someone. Somebody, and I don't know. I don't know that's happening at the time because they've kind of taken over, but I'm not connected with them. If I'm connected with them, the eight-year-old might start talking and I might go, oh, God, I'm being a bit childish now. I better stop that. That was a bit, that's a bit weird. Okay, that's an integrated personality. What happens when the personality shatters is those bonds between the two, they're not connected any anymore, and suddenly things will trigger that person at that part of the personality to come forward without the other parts of the personality knowing that it's happening. Yeah. And there's three types. I mean, we have iatrogenic, we have traumagenic, and we have sociogenic. And sociogenic would be someone's upbringing that did it. But traumagenic is the most common because kids, especially kids, as they're growing up, if they suffer any kind of abuse, they become experts at dissociation, which is where most of the mind while the abuse is occurring, goes somewhere else. So they get to form some kind of permanent neural pathways towards the dissociative side of the scale. Wow. So Next question is, what do you think about Michael Jackson's interview where he was holding Macaulay Culkin's hand? Haven't watched it. Never saw it. I've seen it. Never seen it. Okay. There's another question come in about people on drugs. Let me see if I can you find it. Anything on psychopaths? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to go to a psychopath next. That is um, the nice like But there's one more question come in here. Can you ask them if someone that is actively using drugs, does that change their ability to read body language? Is body language different? Sure. Your baseline is what you have to work from. And even when someone is using drugs, they're great interviews where you can see people who are using tranquilizers and it takes away a lot of that edginess and that kind of thing. So you have to look for a new baseline. It's harder by, I mean, absolutely. But somebody drinking has the same thing. Pay attention to your friends, go out to the pub and watch them about three drinks in. Watch how much more relaxed they get, lowers inhibitions, does ever all that same stuff, and you just look for a new a new baseline. But you've got to, you've got to know uh, what the um, presenting uh, elements of the drug taking right. are. So I yep. used to work with offenders at risk of offence in the probation system, and so people would turn up to meetings with me, and I'd need to know like. Have they been using? What does that look like? You know, is it, is it what's the difference between uh, a diabetic reaction and drug use or alcohol use? So, so you're only going to kind of be able to work with this if you have some kind of experience of what the behaviors tend to look like and you're willing to ask as well. That's really handy if you just kind of ask. Have you seen the Michael Jackson documentary Square One? Have not. No. Okay, let's. We've got five minutes left. Then, what is your take on Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker? I think we pretty much. I think it's obvious we're dealing with a, with a psychopath there. All the hallmarks, every air mark for psychopathy, you see it there. Everything from 
uh, his treatment of people, the way he talks about himself, the way he tries to present himself to the people that are interviewing him, the way he acts in court, everything shows us that there's, there are no feelings there. He has no, doesn't have, he tries to mimic feelings. He tries to mimic emotions because he's seen other people have those as psychopaths will do. They'll mimic the emotions they see others have. So they will seem normal to other people around him. And that's what we're seeing with him. And in one interview, he was actually, he was trying to seem like he was really smart. So he's reading these things from Kafka and Shakespeare and were his answers. And it was, it was just, it was just obviously you talk to those, it's hard. You can't diagnose a psychopath in five minutes. I can spot him. It takes a lot, sometimes it takes up two years to do it. So he's but, making up his identity yeah. essentially yeah. from pits that he's picked up, including his intellectual identity. So you see him, he's like mm -hmm. a kind of a bad piece of postmodernist poetry, you know, T.S. Eliot or Ezra Pound. Like it's made up of everything just bad, you know, the, the Romeo, Juliet, violet, uh, violent delights have violent ends. He adds, tends to in it. So he even misquotes because it's not really attached to him. He's read it somewhere else, seen somebody else say it, he's lumped it all together and tried to create a personality and it and it's just an empty shell, essentially. Shards put together. Which is, sort of, which is in a way, in a way, not exactly the the, the uh, um what what the girl who was the girl we were, we were looking at uh, yesterday? Jody Arias. She's tomorrow, guys. Yep. Right. She has border, my, in my opinion, it's a borderline personality situation going on there because what she does, instead of grabbing things and keeping them, she will mimic what you do. She'll be you as you're talking to her, which is a fascinating study if you're into that, that type of thing. But she literally chameleons everything you do. If you start counting on one hand as she, with her answers, she'll start counting on the, same, on, on the same hand as well. The same vernacular, the same adjectives, the same descriptors, the same types of words you use, she will. But when you have a psychopath, they're, 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 practicing using terms they've heard throughout the week or throughout the month and they'll use those so they'll show you they have emotion by getting by acting angry about something or acting happy about something that they had nothing to do with yeah for me ramirez is very simply one of the worst i've seen at least these other guys have some kind of a throttle some kind of a governor and they try to slow it down it seems no governor that guy's just wide open enjoyed everything he did if he had any emotion it was joy about the things he was doing and it's just He's one of my least favorite people I've ever seen in my life. And that says something. Yeah. yeah and he's the, the forensic guy who talked to him said, this is one of a rare case where it was a, a created psychopath instead of a born psychopath. And if you're watching right now, you want to see something really cool. Look up the term hybristophilia. This is the psychological term that makes women fall for serial killers and start sending them underwear and stuff like that into the jail. And that's and why marrying them. And marry yes, them. marrying yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be fatal, that condition. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. It can. It can. Well, tr trusting <laughs> bad guys, you know, it's a, that's an, our next big thing is this trafficking thing. We're, we're going to put together a course, a quick PSA, so people can easily identify trafficking. And it's because most people fall for people. They think they have a good eye and a good ear, and they don't, and they end up in trouble. Mm. Well, our, our motto on this channel is end the war on drugs and put all that resources into going after predators and uh, human traffickers. And, um, you know, you guys are doing absolutely fantastic work. Really appreciate you spending this time with us this evening. Where would you like, we're going to put all your links in the description box below the video. Where would you like people to go and find your work? Right behind Greg. The behaviorpanel.com. <laughs> yeah, the behaviorpanel.com.
Uh, and you're doing loads yeah. on YouTube. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having us, man. We Thank really you. appreciate yeah, so it. Much. We love coming on, John. Yeah, well, yeah, good to see really you, Sean. Appreciate it. Oh, Thank thanks you. very much. You, you guys thanks have a great so evening. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye now. See you later. Bye-bye. 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 Okay, so now we are moving on to our next guests. And let me just put these guys in the waiting room. Here we go. More, more, more. Put in the waiting room. All right. So we have got Ron Swanson coming in. Oh, another viewer favorite. Live chat is absolutely hopping. This evening, the Swansonator is about to enter the room. And the Swansonator. What is happening, mate? How are you? How are you? We're doing absolutely great. The chat is popping. We've got over 3,000 watching simultaneously oh, wow. right now. Okay. In the well, intro, I told him you have got a shit hot trailer. I, for yeah. our new serial killer series, we do. Would you, would you like to tell us about that? I think I think I can handle that. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to do. I'm going to move the ketchup bottle out of out of shot. That's what we're going to do. Uh, so that's fine. So yeah, we've got our new series starting on Friday. Um, the Darkest Net series two it is a two volume series. We're looking at serial killers all the way through February. And then we're looking at online abusers, torturers, and a whole bunch of nasties. Uh, yeah. Then what are you doing? Mr. Atwood hiding over at the side there. You're okay. <laughs> okay. You are, you are on full screen right now. I'm just doing a camera oh, adjustment. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking what was happening. Um, I'm, I'm about to change my battery. <laughs> ah, that's fine. Okay. So uh, we have some amazing guests lined up. We have Phil Chalmers. We have Bizarre Bizarre. Uh, both these individuals um, in their own rights communicate with killers. And Phil's been working for 35 years, spoken to 200 plus serial killers, uh, and he trains law enforcement in school shootings, math killers, um, teen shooters, thrill killers, serial killers. And he's going to basically have a killer, a serial killer from prison on, on the phone um, for us to kind of pitch some questions to. Um, because as crazy as it's Has fun, that been done before? Don't know if it's been done live on YouTube, um, but I am, I am editing... Uh, an interview. I, I can't remember. I'll, I'll get the guy's. Um, I'll get the guy's name before before we before we leave here. Let me just. Uh, uh, but we're we're talking about well known killers. We're talking about um, people that you may have heard of, people that you may not have, and when you when you kind of hear from the horse's mouth, sort of say, just how disconnected some of these people are from their crimes, it's 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 insane. And I think next week. Um, if you want to talk about things that have never been done, I think Phil's got a live interview with a killer who's going to confess to Phil where there's a body um, that a family, you know, have never had closure. He's going to confess to our murder. He's going to hand over the body to the family and say where it's buried. And I think that's Phil's 17th or 18th body that he's friended a killer, convinced them to tell us to tell him where the bodies are. And that's really what drives Phil is to um, learn the habits of these individuals and be able to hand that knowledge over to, to law enforcement and also to bring closure to families. And he's done quite a lot of big uh, TV series on Discovery Channel. He's done uh, True Crime Daily. He's done Bio. He's done a bunch of stuff um, over the last few years. And I don't know anyone 
anyone at all who can turn around and say, I'm friends with 200 plus serial killers. It's very rarely do I speak to Phil where his phone doesn't ring and it's not someone phoning from prison. Wow. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And he's got a real, like, and again, just to reiterate, this Phil's job is law enforcement training, counter-homicide training, and he is the leading US specialist in school shootings and teen shooters. <clears throat> so he's the real deal. He's not, he's not a crazy dude on YouTube uh, doing this for clicks. This is, this is him at the, basically um, 35 years after he started bringing his knowledge now uh, to social media. So it's quite exciting. Um, I think we're starting off with film, and I can't wait. Are you able to show us the trailer? Of course, of course, <laughs> of course. Let me get um, back on full screen. Yeah, that's all right. Um, but it's, I have to say, we had a fantastic show last Friday with yourself, sir. Um, it was, oh, it was fun. You had, had me grave dancing at double speed. Mate, I'm, I'm still you, getting heckled about that. Mate, I, I was, do you know what? I actually did three different edits where one you were dancing to like Russian techno, one you were doing. <laughs> do you know what? Do you know what? I said, there's too many people out there that will just use this for, for not entertainment purposes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put that all in like the Christmas blooper reel. All right. That's too funny. That's too Ron funny. did a This Is Your Life. Um, yeah. <laughs> putting all these photos up about me asking me questions about them and then he had the rave dancing just when i got out rave dancing in my parents living room i even do it i even do a foot grab if you put in sean out with rave dancing you'll get that clip on youtube at normal speed but ron had it at double double speed <laughs> yeah, that's what serious investigators do all right we need to break <laughs> right now and again all right now how do i how do i do i just share a screen no, okay. So do I need to send you the link and you can screen share it? Because now we're about to boom her out live on your channel. Just yeah, so. I'm not capable of screen sharing. It's beyond my ra range of knowledge. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, since, since we're using Zoom, uh, there is a button here that says screen share, but it says host disabled participant screen sharing. So that means it's all on your head. Whatever oh. way you want to spin it, right? It's all on your head, Sean. Uh, so, so I've got to make you the host. Is that what happens? Maybe, maybe, yeah. Let's I, have I can, a look more. I can make you the host. Make co-host. If I make you a co-host, can you yeah. do it? Let's try. Okay. Oh. Do you want to make Ron the co-host this meeting? Yes. Okay. You're now a co-host. Oh, that was super easy. We know See? What I'm learning. We know what we're doing. People out there saying we don't know what we're doing, and I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Okay, so... I will play this for you now. So this is a trailer for uh, season two, uh, The Darkest Net, obviously, Sean Atwood channel uh, with myself and a line of guests. Have a look at this and tell me what you all think. I believe we are raising and creating a generation of killers. And the breakdown of family and the, the constant barrage of violence. So these kids are growing up and they're the most violent generation we've ever seen. Five teenagers kill every day. 12 young people kill themselves every day. I call this generation, Generation Death. 
Season two. Ooh, spine chilling. It's spicy. It's High spicy. quality production as usual. Appreciate that. Thank you very, very much. A question came in for you. Yeah. How many how many active serial killers does Phil think are roaming free in the UK? Oh, that's one for Friday, guys. Like, I'm not the serial killer guy. I'm the guy that rants at the pedophiles, right? That's my job. Uh, so, <laughs> I, do you know... It, editing the the series for phil <coughs> um because uh, i'm doing his editing and stuff for him at the moment and he you get sucked into it you get sucked into listening to all these facts and it, it, it's it's amazing uh but like i say we also have mike uh from bizarre bizarre he's from the uk he does a lot of corresponding uh by letter with serial killers and his channel is amazing as well uh bell de Massey, of course nathan larson uh that whole case and our very own homegrown Ico, who is just an expert in all things from uh, japanese culture killings she's got a, a little dark side to her so she's uh she's she's her research is amazing so i can't wait to see uh how you how you get on with her and yes yes i'm i am aware that the the lip spot has advanced to the next stage of its life so let's all just laugh about it now and move on um 
so I'm excited. We've also got another, I've also got something else planned, which no one knows about yet, um, which will be coming around about the end of March. Um, really exciting all around um, effectively how female streamers, female creators uh, and cyber stalkers uh, are about 20 years behind where the laws need to be to protect uh, women online. And we've got five huge cases that we're going to look at. Uh, involving YouTubers who've basically been told, ladies, you're bringing it on yourself. Now, it's, it's wild. It's, when was the last time you heard a law enforcement agency when it's a crime involving a woman in danger and they're being told they're bringing it on themselves? It's disgusting. So we need to sort of shed light on that and move forward. Also, I just want to say, we do have a bunch of deep web stuff coming for the darkest net as well. Um, a brand new... Um, torture, hurtcore, abuse um, uh, site. <clears throat> and of course, we, sp we spoke a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago about the, the, the big increase in the pedo mum movement uh, on the deep web, which it sounds so stupid. Like there's such stupid names, pedo mums and things like this. It gives it almost like a comical sound, but it's really grim and dark. And it's it's becoming way more prevalent and it's also almost becoming like the the crown jewel for a male pedophile to find a pedo mum and you know begin that as part of their life together so there's another thing that's going to ruin your weekend that we're going to learn all about sadly um just to sort of bring it back to uh the the really horrible serious stuff so We've got two minutes left, and the theme of the night has been Michael Jackson. Okay. What are you, what are you, we've had a variety of opinions tonight on that. What is your opinion on Michael Jackson? Oh, do you know what? I've not thought that much about it to give an actual opinion, but I can give you like a tinfoil hat array of opinions. Like, I, I, a part of me believes he was murdered, right? Part of me believes he was murdered. I don't know what went on with those kids, okay? All I'm saying... And I'm not saying he did, and I'm not saying he didn't, okay? He probably did, right? But who the hell sends their kid who's dying of cancer to stay over at Michael Jackson's house, okay? And also, it's a bit ironic that all of the kids that were dying of cancer, none of them died of cancer. I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm just saying. Um, <clears throat> so... I don't know. I think there's more to the Michael Jackson story. Did he do it? Probably. Probably. Ooh. That's about all I've really got to say. It's a weird one. Do you know what I mean? It's like when people ask you about Princess Diana. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, oh, no, the, the official report is totally true. <laughs> Michael Jackson is another one like that for me. I was a huge Michael Jackson fan growing up. And when the first uh, wave of accusations came out and things like this, I mean... I don't, I don't know. It's a weird one. I think he probably did do it. Is he a traditional predator, pedophile? Probably not. Did he think he was doing anything wrong? Probably not. Is he mad? Probably. Probably. It's a weird one, Sean. I, I watched the autopsy episode on Michael okay. Jackson and the amount of drugs he was on. And it's like people like him and Prince, you know, didn't consider themselves drug addicts because they were getting pills from doctors but the, the cocktails of pills they were on were absolutely flabbergasting, and that's what yeah. caused the deaths, premature yeah. deaths. Like, I, there's so many things that we could pull apart with Michael Jackson, and I don't know any of the proper facts. Like, I know 
the headlines. I've done no investigating or anything like that. So this is not my topic uh, to have a serious discussion with. But I definitely think there's more to it. Uh, I think there's more to Michael Jackson's whole life story than we all know. And that doesn't excuse anything. But did he do it? Probably, yeah. Yeah, probably. So where can people find you, Ron, and support you? You guys can find me at Surviving Life on YouTube, uh, Surviving Life YT on Instagram and Snapchat. Uh, my link tree is also in the description, and survivinglife.tv is the current uh, domain name. We do a bunch of streams. I'm currently moving to a new office, uh, hopefully going to see the last one on Friday and then making a decision and moving there next week. So everything's up in the air. But if any of you have children and work from home, you'll know. But for the first couple of months of lockdown, it was real cool. It was real cool. The kids being home. It was a novelty. We're 14 months in now, okay? We're 14 months in, and Ron can't get any work done because his children want to shower him in love, okay? And it's like, your love is oppressive to me now, okay? You're oppressing me with your love, children. So uh, it's moved to a new office, um, and that opens up lots of doors. Like, for example, when all of the travel restrictions are done, Sean will be able to come and visit us and we'll be able to sit in the nice office, do a podcast, do all that kind of stuff without Runa running in and making him sit and do finger painting for 40 minutes. All right. And what time are people going to be able to watch our live stream this Friday? Stay tuned for the start time. We're juggling the start time. We're just making sure we can get the people on the phone. So it'll be but no, around about the normal Atwood start time. Uh, I don't think it'll be any later starting than seven or eight because Atwood will be... Ready for his bed by about two hours <laughs> into the stream. <laughs> right, we might have to get a cardboard cut out of Atwood to sit on his chair for those nights. Um, but as soon as as soon as we can confirm the start time, we'll get it up for you. I'm sorry that's uh, a bit all over the place. Um, it's just we're still trying to pin down exactly when the call is going to be. So, Huge thank you for coming on, Ron, and I look forward to seeing you on Friday, brother. A pleasure as always. Thank you, Atwood Army, and I will see you all uh, in the next one. Now, I'm not uh, now. I, I'm not co-hosting anymore, am I? No. No, no. I'm going to bump you into the waiting not... room now. Okay, yeah. good. Right, that's fine. All okay. right, bump me into the waiting room. I don't want to push anything. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. All right, so we now have two more guests before our final guest. So we've got two more guest sections. David Whitehead. And Jane. And I've just watched this content on David Whitehead's channel. As I said earlier, we've had David on two times before. He did a Maxwell piece and he did a piece on Colts. Absolutely solid guy. And, and David is with us now. Huge thank you for joining us this evening, David. How's things going? Hey, Sean. Hope you can hear me okay. Uh, doing well. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I can hear you crisp and clear. Nice setup, man. Thank you. Thank you. Um, wow. What, a, what an amazing show you've got going on here. You've been really knocking it out of the park. And uh, I really appreciate you getting me back to me on this story that I've been working on. Um, hopefully, Jane should be jumping in in a moment here. But um, oh, I think she's, she's there with us. Hello, Jane. Welcome. Um, before we turn it over to Jane, Sean, maybe if, if it's all right with you, I'll just give people a little synopsis about how uh, Jane and I met and, and how this story sort of came to be. Yeah, I just want to tell all the viewers that David's links are in the description box below the video. Check out the stuff on his channel. It is really worthwhile. And huge thank you for Jane uh, for spending this time with us this evening. 
I watched what you already did with David and I see, you know, how you feel this is such an important story to get out there to shine a light on this darkness. So we all salute you here. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as everybody can imagine, this has been really tough on Jane to keep bringing this story up. You know, we've gone on a few different shows. Um, I can imagine just how hard it is, but in another way, it's part of this healing process of uh, finally giving her the platform to be able to share her personal experience with many of the, the dark things that you cover on your show that I've been covering on my show that uh, we can't ignore anymore. We can't ignore it. I know it's horrific. I know it frightens a lot of people. Um, it's not the kind of conversation we would prefer to have, but it's something that is needed to have because we have to bring the truth forward if we're ever going to resolve any of this stuff. And so just a quick little background. And then I honestly want to give the floor over to Jane so she has as much time as possible to sort of give people a synopsis of her incredible, incredible story. Um, but she had contacted me um, before the holidays. We had some email back and forths. And um, as I kept having these conversations with her, I realized just how big this story was. I mean, I get people emailing me all the time, as I'm sure you do, Sean, and there's unfortunately so many victims out there. And you also have to do that process of vetting the people that you're going to bring onto your platforms and everything else. And so I said, okay, let's just do it. Let's do a talk. And so her and I did a call. We recorded it. Uh, that's the, the video that I released on my channel. People can, can check it out. Hopefully that YouTube hasn't taken it down just yet, uh, but I do have it on my backup channels. But what she brought out in that interview um, was, it was life-changing for me. Like it, it just, it confirmed so many of the things that I was researching independently for many years um, about these types of cults, the satanic ritualistic abuse, the human trafficking, the, the level of it, uh, that this is not just, you know, dealing with some local gangs or some uh, third world countries. Like this goes way, way up the fractal as you've covered a lot on your show. And her story really just started to confirm that. And um, she also had an extensive amount of documentation of her case, um, which I hadn't seen before in that regard. So uh, right away, I said, let's get this story out and let's do it in a way that's going to actually cause an impact so that people can hear it from somebody who lived it. And so I salute her. Jane is one of the strongest people I've met, honestly, for her to be able to talk about this. And I salute her bravery. Uh, lots of love to you, Jane. I've gotten nothing but emails and messages from so many people, literally from all over the world, that are rallying behind you right now. And um, I think what your story is doing is what you intended it to do, as we discussed, which was to give a voice to other victims who are afraid to speak out. And hopefully it's also going to flag some of these people that are working in the behind the scenes to come out and share what they know. So uh, that's my little introduction. I'm going to sit back um, and Sean, I'll, I'll get you to take it away with Jane. Yeah, Jane. So our mission statement on this channel is for the government to end the war on drugs and start the war on predators and pedophiles. Take all those resources that have been wasted on this futile war and do something that could absolutely make a difference in people's lives. Instead of throwing kids in private prisons for weed possession and giving you know these priests who bring the high priced lawyers in slaps on the wrist the whole justice system is upside down and the absolute devastation that these predators cause you know 
we see men end up on drugs. They can't deal with it. What's happened to them? They're not given the tools to deal with it. They end up in prison. Women end up in a lot of men up on drugs as well or in some kind of crime. And then they're never listened to because they're criminalized. You know, they're, they're cast uh, like throwaway people, basically, in the hatred that comes when, you know, I watched one TED talk about trafficking where it showed them as little babies and it showed them as adult women and they had hardcore drug problems and people who, who end up scorned by society. So the world needs to wake up to this trajectory and you're doing a hugely important job and all the people in the chat right now can't wait to hear what you've got to say so i would urge you just to take your time you've got the biggest slot of the night right now but if we do run out of time we would gladly um have you come back and and you know just just keep going with your story so i'm going to put you on full view and if you just want to start at the beginning and then just just tell people a bit about your life and what happened Okay, yeah. Um, I was uh, born into um, a world of sex trafficking and organized crime. And my abuse started um, as young of an age as I can remember. Um, it started with my parents and a group um, who they were involved with. And so I was being sexually molested, raped, abused, and passed around. Um, there were many different uh, people who I was abused by, and some on a regular, more regular basis. Uh, there was also a lot of other abuse um, that was going on as well. So there was uh, verbal, mental, emotional um Excuse me. It's okay. Take your time. When you say you were born into this, then what were the circumstances of your childhood? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, so like your mom and dad, how did they yes. get together and how did oh. you, en you end up, you know, being turned into a human commodity? It's just the way it was. Um, it's, it's just, it, it's, that's just the way it was. That's what I was born into. And from my earliest memories, um, which are, I have memories even as early as about two years old. They may be fragmented, but I do. Um, and I have so many memories that, you know, when I do things like this and I share and I talk to somebody, what ends up happening inside of me is, is um, a door is opened and all of the memories and all of my experiences start flooding me again. And it can become very overwhelming. There were so many people and there was so much abuse and it did not stop. And um, <clears throat> I, I ran... It started in Victoria, BC. Um, I was a huge red flag. As soon as I, I never did finish, get to finish school, but when I was placed into school for the time I was there, I was a huge red flag. And so I guess teachers and others um, 
that's when it was shortly after that that child protective services and there was also police involvement and there was a lot of extreme violence including violence with weapons that was occurring as well so there were a numerous separate occasions where the police would come to the home to take him out of the home um, but they would always let him come back in the home shortly after and I was never removed from the home. Um, when I was about 12, he, um, he pulled me from school um, and we moved um, across the city and stayed in this house. It must have been for at least maybe a couple months and nothing was ever unpacked. So it was like we were living like squatters and then in the middle of the winter, he packed us all up again and fled with us all the way, like across many provinces to the other end. So I ended up in Ottawa. And again, um, it wasn't long after arriving there that again, uh, police involvement and child protective services involvement. And I think that that would have begun as soon as I was put into a school again. And they're looking at me and they're seeing whatever signs they're seeing and something's really horribly wrong here. Um, and uh, I started running um, when I was about, I don't know, one or about, it wasn't long after we got there, um, 12, 13, something like that, I started running. Um, Um, I would be picked up on occasion by child protective services, like I said, and police became involved, um, again, probably it might've been after I started running, um, and, and on occasions that they would pick me up off the street, like they'd be looking for me and then they'd bring me back and put me back in my home. Um, and then a lot of other people started coming in to the scene. Um, people who were involved in uh, bike gangs. Uh, they started coming into the home. Um, I remember many different occasions, uh, starting from when I was very little. Um, I know there was exchange of money that was going on because when I was really little, my dad used to, he used to tell me, he opened a, a bank account in my name. And as these things, these abuses were happening to me on occasion, he would show me the bank account and he would say, look how much money you have now. And You're doing perfectly fine. Everybody, everybody in the live chat is watching this right now is just wishing you love and strength and support. Um, and in Ottawa, um, when these uh, people, 
bike that belonged with these bike gangs and stuff and, and they were a lot older than me and they started coming into the home and I remember there was exchange of uh, cartons of cigarettes, um, alcohol. Um, and so they were, I was, they were coming into the home on occasion as well. And, and and then uh, uh, just one second. You're fine. I just want to say something quick, um, Jane, to to remember to remind you that you had said to me that these people treated you as less than human, but they didn't destroy your humanity like they did for so many others. And you mentioned how so many other people who were victimized in this way in this horrific industry um, became those predators later in life because trauma at a young age, et cetera. But that didn't happen to you. That didn't happen to you. Something has anchored you. Something has kept you strong. Something has been with you. And that presence is with you now as you do this. And I just wanted to let you know that, that the I'm with you. Sean is with you. The people are with you and unseen forces are with you. And as they've always been. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I started running, um, and I, I, I had no place to go. Um, I was being either snatched up off the street and, and like I said, I was in and out of my home, either brought back by the police or CAS and these criminal individuals were also coming into the home um, on occasion. And my parents, um, they knew, obviously, they were my first traffickers and abusers and were tied in with a lot of the people who were doing these things to me. But even later on in my life, um, they were always involved. Um, when I was being uh, trafficked to different provinces in Canada by various groups, when I was being passed off or sold, um, all the different places in Canada that I ended up, um, they had, they, they, there was never a time they did not have knowledge of what was being done to me, what was happening, um, even to this, to this day, um, obviously. Uh, I remember some of the times that I tried to run uh, from either these individuals or these groups, um, when they would be looking for me, they would call my parents and they would ask them, where I was. And this went on for many years and they would find me. Sometimes they would locate me through them. Um, and to this day that still happens. That's still occurring. Um, and, uh, you're okay. Let me ask you a question. So this horrific stuff was going on. And then how did you learn that there were other victims as well? 
How, how old were you when you've learned about other victims and maybe met other victims? When I was really little, when I was really little. Um, I do know um, one of them today still. Well, I have not, I don't communicate or have any contact with this person, but um, I watched this person grow up and they've never got out. And turned predator, but was groomed to become that. Was groomed to become that. Yeah. And is killing herself um, in many different ways, uh, still very heavily involved with the organized crime gangs and is killing herself every day um, with drugs, with alcohol. Um, what, so what, what, what proportion of abuse victims survive and what proportion end up on substances? Oh, geez. Um, addiction, I think, plays a really big part. Um, I know for myself, from my own experience, um, it was first it was forced on me. It was pushed on me. I was literally drugged. Um, and that started when I was very little. Um, and then as time goes on, a lot of them use that. A lot of them use that because it, it makes, I guess in their mind, it makes you easier to control. And, and I think there's other reasons as well, though, uh, creating a dependence. But I think there's other reasons as well. I think it's, it's maybe even um, done to... You see, one of the things, the threats for these people that are doing these things, these predators, is that the victim may open her mouth, his or her mouth, and tell somebody or say something. And so they all seem to use the same tactics, um, not only to control, but also to... Um, they want to, this was done to me. I'm just trying to find the words to explain it. If you ever come out and you have a, and you, you've been, you're being victimized in this way, these ways, or you have been, and you are struggling with an addiction. If you ever come out, they're going to use that against you. Well, she's just some drug addict. Why would you believe her? Look at the mess that she is. She's insane. She's got mental and emotional problems. And sure you do. A lot. Enough to kill you. But they will turn those things. They're not, you know, they only, they're using those. It's as a result of the abuse that they are inflicting on the victim, but they turn it in such a way as to use it to discredit them. So 
you know, to get the focus off of them being the perpetrator and to, to put it all on the victim, falsely blame and, and discredit and, and silence the victim. Ultimately. So, so the traffickers then, they sell the kids to pedophile clients, I assume. And what scale of people are these i mean are these people from high society that have got money to pay to have sex with kids what what can you say about that from your own experience from my own experience uh well i like i said i was being born into this world and i and i could not escape i could never escape it took divine intervention somebody coming into my life um it's an absolute miracle and and things began to change but i in that as long as i was in that world i i witnessed a lot of things i saw a lot of things i know that i i met a I, I obviously i encountered a lot of the kind of people that are involved in this ring in these rings um and they are not just sex traffickers these people are not just sex traffickers. They are involved in weapons trafficking and drug trafficking on international scales. Um, and uh, lots of different types of fraud. Um, and yes, some of them come from, uh, aside from the different criminal gangs that are involved, which I personally encountered, I've named uh, a number of them um, on a, on the other show that I did with David. Um, you also have the people who, like you said, uh, come from money. They're born into money. They are in positions of, of like high up positions, prominent, right? They're born into money. They, uh, I could name some of their positions, but I want to be careful. So lawyers, doctors, police officers, politicians, um, and others, um, in the church, in churches. Um, and, and they're not only in my experience, say some of these people who victimized me, who were born into money. Um, they're not only purchasing women and girls or children, okay, for the sexual purposes, but they're also involved with these criminal groups um, in support of their other crimes, like drug trafficking and weapons trafficking, okay? What they do is they they are investing they invest so these criminal individuals in this ring they create a lot of fronts like phony business fronts charities uh they're tied in with um you know they're involved i mean they're what do you call that octopus the uh, tentacles tentacles are into everything and uh, real estate, um, travel agencies, timeshares, stock market, oil and gas companies, mining companies are a big thing. Um, and, and so 
I don't know why I went there. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we have we have we have seen all those tentacles in the Epstein case, and that's really woken a lot of people up around the world. Let me ask you a different question then. Oh, so I wanted to make one more comment. Okay, go for it. It's not just investing. So what they'll do is these criminal organizations, um, and they're they're creating them, you know, to avoid detection, maybe in part, but also to launder money, right? So these guys with a lot of money, they're investing in that. They're investing in their criminal enterprises to keep it going. Right? Yeah, it's a multi-billion dollar yes. industry. Yes. So you, me you mentioned earlier then that a lot of abuse victims don't survive. Were there any moments when you thought that you were close to that happening to you? Absolutely. Um, I, I actually, um, and this started when I was very little. Uh, when I was very little, my dad held me hostage with a knife to my throat. Mm. He, on another occasion, tried to stab me with a knife. The knife was coming through the door, and it was practically hitting my face. It came through the door about three times. That's one of the occasions the police had come. Um, and so, and then throughout my life and my experiences, yes, I, I had many experiences like that being beaten to a pulp and told, I was asked how I wanted to die by one of the traffickers. He asked me how I wanted to die. He told me he was going to kill me and I, he had me pinned and I could not move. And I said my, I closed my eyes. I gave up and said my last prayers and he didn't kill me. <laughs> but what I went through inside, um, I can't explain, but it's, it's like he did. And uh, there were many situations that I ended up in um, when I was being trafficked. I, I would be brought to a, to a man and, and handed over to him and they would leave. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And I would be raped. I... Um, and I, yeah, um, there were, there's too many to remember. I, I have had attempts made on my life. Um, I have had um, price, it's called a price put on your head. Because any, when I would try to run or escape from the traffickers or these criminal groups, and this happened many times in Canada and in the United States, um, aside from being told that if you run, I'm going to kill you, you're going to be killed if you run, they, I, I was told that um, if I ran, if you try to escape, they'll kill you. If you run, um, 
so yeah, there's there was a lot. Um, of... So you mentioned running then, and there was nowhere to run. Did yeah. any did anyone come into your life who tried to help you during these trafficking years? I, I did have, um, there, there's an occasion pops in my head right now, as you ask me, uh, of a man when I was in the United States. And he promised me that he would help me. And the next thing you know, he was saying, get away from me, stay away from me, I can't help you. And it was because the trafficker had caught wind and was I threatening him. And when I was 13 in Montreal, um, and I was brought by this group to this hotel, this is just one occasion, they brought me to a hotel, um, brought me upstairs, businessman opened the door, they put me inside, they exchanged the money, and I took a chance in that room and I was begging that man to help me. And he was promising that he was going to help me as he was forcing himself on top of me. And he never did help me. What he did instead was he told the traffickers that I had I guess opened my mouth, I had asked for help, she wants out, she wants to escape, whatever he told them. And I ended up getting beaten up for that. How did you manage to break free from these bastards? It wasn't for a very long time. It was when my partner came into my life. You see, I came to a place where, I, and I don't know if, I would even say came to a place, I was not capable of being able to help myself, to save myself, to rescue myself. They, it only got worse and worse and worse and I could never get out for various multiple different reasons. And I'm telling you, I believe that God, I believe sent someone in to get me because I was not capable. And that's when things began to change. And for the first time, here I am with somebody who is supporting me to go to the police and to start reporting all these perpetrators. See, I didn't know that what all this, I didn't know these people were sex traffickers. I didn't know that that's what they were called at that time. Um, all I could tell you was what they did to me, you know, the things that were being done to me, but that's what they were. And, and for the first time I had somebody come into my life who was supportive of me getting all this stuff out and talking about it and actually going to the police. Because I remember when I ran on one of the occasions I ran to the church for help, they told me, no, no, you don't go to the police with this stuff. Um, that it wasn't of God to report these things to the police. That you have to forgive and you have to, 
and, and you're supposed to just forget everything and move on. And there's something wrong with you is what's implied if you don't just forget about it. But no, you never go to the police um, that it's, it's, it's of the devil. It's not of God. And basically, I'm going to go to hell if I go to the police and report these crimes. And these are the kinds of things that were directly at sometimes told to me or indirectly. Um, and then also on top of that, um, you know, these traffickers, pedophiles, uh, sexual abusers, they are in the church. They're in the churches. I've seen a lot of that. We've interviewed some people and they've said that pedophiles join the church specifically because they know if they get caught, they'll bring in high priced lawyers that will get them low sentences or slaps on the wrist. I've seen that. I've experienced that. And also, um, uh, um, they're do they're going there to recruit. I seen that as well. I saw it. Um, and I think this is a, just to jump in really quick that um, this was a point that I just wanted to make is that all the institutions that you would think to go to in order to get justice or protection are what turned on Jane and turned their backs on this entire thing. I mean, look at us right now. We're locked down in a pandemic for something that's like the flu. All right. And the whole world is locked down and all the attention and all the news is about this virus. What if we did the same thing? with the issue that we're covering right now. And what if all the powers of law enforcement and government pointed their powers at this issue around the world? Because this is an issue that crosses party lines. It crosses differences in philosophy, religion, every, all these different things. And it's the most important issue. Uh, this is the ultimate crime against humanity. And yet the government has failed Jane. The police have failed Jane, the, uh, the, the legal system. Uh, good luck trying to find a lawyer who who knows they're risking their life by doing this, right? So this is this is the this is how crazy this is. That's how far up the totem pole these people really go, and that's why I'm so happy we're doing this because now it's about talking to the people out there, the actual human beings that yeah. have that are here to cre create awareness because we're the ones that have the power here. Because clearly the people that are supposed to be in charge of this issue are dropping the ball big time. And they're probably implicit in it, or at least turning their blind eye to it. And that's the travesty. Well, I know there's complicity um, and, and also turning the blind eye. I know that from my own experiences. Yeah. And that's what we're saying. The U.S. has spent $2 trillion on this war on drugs, and yet drugs are more available than ever. It was just a complete waste of money. But it's because they've profited from it. They've learned to profit from that all these contracts and helping people like Jane, obviously that's not a center of profit for them. So you, you go to the bottom of the pecking order. It's an absolute travesty. We're going to have to wrap this up in a couple of minutes. We've got one question coming from a viewer and it said, um, does Jane still feel fear? And I'd like to add to that because we're all naturally concerned about you, Jane. What measures are you taking to deal with your trauma and anxiety? Um, I don't know how to answer that. I, I had a tremendous amount of anxiety over the past number of days. I still experience terror. Um, I, 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 
this community that I am in, that I ran to a number of years ago to escape from that, from them, um, I've actually, I've experienced ongoing threats, harassment, and intimidation because I am opening my mouth and I'm telling people, I'm, I'm talking about the abuse, I'm naming names, I've gone to the police, and that has leaked back to a number of the individuals in these crime ring, this crime ring. Um, and a number of them from my past have come to this community. Um, these are all things that I did report um, on numerous occasions to the authorities. These people were coming here. And the reason they're coming here for the most part is because they know I'm here or have learned that I'm here. Um, and also, uh, one of them, the, one of the last ones that I saw here, um, I saw him here twice. And the second time he was with a group of about five or six others. Um, I saw him with a girl, a young girl. And on the second time I saw him here, he actually approached me. And he acted like he was surprised to see me. And long story short, um, he told me he had a place in Toronto and in Ottawa and was trying to get me to go with him. And there are a lot of, um, there's a big problem in this, the community that I'm in right now, uh, a lot of uh, pedophiles, registered pe uh, sex offenders and pedophiles in this community. Um, there's a network operating right in this community and some of them, uh, a number of them are tied in with the churches here. And a number of them also are aware of what I am doing. Got num numerous numerous people are uh, asking if there is a way to donate money to you, if you've got a PayPal or a GoFundMe, or if if there's somewhere you have a web page where they can find and and give you their full support. Do you, do you have an internet presence at all? No. Okay. Um, um, would would you would you like to establish something like that at some point? Maybe for. Maybe it could help for funding for a lawyer, David. Yes, I was I was what actually going to talk to you about this. We have to put something like that together, and um, we, we'll work on that behind oh. the scenes, one hundred percent. Oh my. Okay, great. I'm, I'm just you've been so brave. Um, thank you for coming on, both you guys. The chat is just all love and support, commending your bravery, saluting you. And it's only by exposing these dark things that have been hidden, like you guys have pointed out, by institutions that we can put the pressure on the authorities to do the right thing. Because there are a lot of good, well-meaning people join the authorities to get the bad guys. And these shitty orders come down from the top. But it's stories like yours that resonate with these people who watch these videos that make them think, hmm... I'm, I, I'm not quite happy with what I'm doing, you know, and they express that to their superiors and changes get made from the ground level up. So huge thank you for coming on. And, um, you know, we, people are so concerned about you. We, we would love um, to just find out over your, how you're doing in the coming weeks and months if you could just keep us informed.
And thanks also to David. And I, I, again, I'm going to urge people to go in the description box, check out the important work that David is doing on his channel and, um, you know, his mission dovetails exactly with what we're doing here. Is there anything you guys would like to say in conclusion then to the viewers? I'll just say a big thank you to you, Sean, to everybody in the chat. Um, please, the best thing you can do is share this interview, share the interview that I did on my channel. Um, we did some other and just get this story out and do what you can. This is where we're put into this position where we're like, what can I do? What can I do? Ask yourself that question. What can you do? What, what's your abilities? Who do you know? What are your talents? Use them. Um, and truth will prevail. Truth wins in the end. Freedom wins in the end. And the good is going to prevail over this evil. Mark my words. So thank you to you all. And uh, um, thank you, Jane. We'll, we'll talk afterwards about some other solutions we can get going for you. All right. Cheers, David. You have a good evening. Thank you as well. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.